Cajun across the nation. Pushing the brand across the land. Welcome to Ragin' Review. Made by the fans, for the fans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rage and Review podcast. Got Jerry here with me, and we're going to introduce uh, a familiar face, but someone new to the podcast in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to give a shout out to Burgersmith, a sponsor of the Nature Louisiana Open that's in town this weekend. Uh, they were kind enough to send over some passes and VIP badges to, to the pod. So I just want to give them a plug. Go by. Camellia Boulevard, give them uh, uh, some business, buy a burger, get a drink, whatever. Just wanted to say thank you to those guys. Introducing Mr. Nick Doming to the Rage and Review podcast. A lot of you guys may know him as the person who invented the phrase, and the answer is not Ron Guidry. Nick, welcome. One of us, one of us, one of us. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Man About Town. Excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me to uh, to fill in this week. And, uh, and you know, I've been knowing Jerry since I think Jerry was in diapers around the ballpark. So, uh, so again, excited to be here. And thank you, guys. Hope I can contribute. It's going to be fun. Um, we're going to jump right into it because we have a lot uh, to get to in this episode. But we will say, Matt, uh, he's working on his new show, doing a great job this first week that he's he's hosting uh, crunch time with Mesh, Amigas and Mesh. So he is stepping away just for a few weeks to kind of focus on that. And he's also got finals coming up so he can be a graduate of the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. So we're going to do some heavy lifting. What's up, man, about town? Josh A. And hey, man, look, Nick. one and twos, ones and twos today. <laughs> All good, man. Nick, welcome aboard, man. Glad to have you. Uh, like like uh, Nick said, we go way back. But uh, life's been good, man. Uh, the little one just turned two months last week. Uh, enjoying baseball and softball right now. I know our basketball season ended last week, but that doesn't stop me from getting ready for some March Madness, right? For those of you who filled your brackets, first games are today. Or well, first, second round games are today. We got to be technical, right? But it's a whole slew of... Uh, of, of games scheduled for today and this week or tomorrow as well as this weekend. So looking forward to that. So yeah, man, just getting adjusted, but for the most part, just enjoying Cajun sports as always. Good deal. And we'll get into the tournament a little bit later. I wanted to first bring up something that's, uh, it's really stuck out to me. And I think it's a great sign for our program and our league on the diamond. The Sun Belt is doing work in the midweek. Uh, just last week, Texas state goes to Austin, Texas, after a really great game in San Marcos where they lose a game by a, a single run, they had the bases loaded with, one, with two outs against Texas in that first match. In the second match, they go to Austin and really just play well. You know, you get the legendary horns down by Sivers, their uh, Texas State closer, which was, I mean, so epic. But that's just one example of a Sunbelt school doing midweek work. You got Georgia Southern just beat uh, Georgia last week in the midweek. You've got just teams up and down the league Really playing well. Who who beat? Didn't Georgia State beat Clemson a couple of days ago? That's another one. You got to think the league is healthy with these teams. Uh, Coastal went out and beat uh, Wake Forest, an unbeaten team at the time, and I think that also happened last Wednesday. So anyway, the the league is healthy. I'm very excited about the prospects of having maybe a three bid league. Certainly, in my view, a two bid league. You know, right now, if you look at RPI, we're the number five league overall 
in college baseball. What do you guys think about our league mates really wrecking shop in the midweek and beating some big-time programs? Well, first of all, I think it's very impressive. Um, we've always had a reputation for having a very good league. At the same time, we haven't really been performing up to the standards that we've known for over the past few years being a one-bid league. Uh, I think when you have teams like Georgia State that go on the road and beat a Clemson, right, that's huge. I mean, any type of win like that is huge. I mean, Texas State staying in the top 25 right now is huge, especially after the year they had last season. Uh, for us, you know, we're sitting with a nine and seven record. And like, like Matt Degg said, there's two games that, that got away from us. Technically he probably thinks we should be 11 and five, but yet as of last night, we have the 19th, uh, bet, uh, 19th toughest strength of schedule. We're 54 in the RPI. And I would think uh, with a little bit of optimism that, and we're going to talk more about this, but if we make a decent run at this conference, you know, we can be up there in the rankings, which can help the rest of the conference. And one thing I want to add uh, you know, we're talking about this year, but for the future of the conference with the four teams coming in, Old Dominion is sitting at a 14-1 and one record. They just beat East Carolina the other night in extra innings. You've got Southern Miss that just beat Alabama last night. They're pretty much in the top 40 right now, even in spite of getting swept by Dallas Baptist, even though Dallas Baptist is a perennial powerhouse. So not only this year, but for the future of the Sun Belt, if these teams keep doing what they're doing, this can be a top six, top seven league like we've known it to be. So I'm very optimistic about it. I think as long as these teams don't slip up as time goes on, right? Like if Georgia State doesn't start getting swept by teams and take advantage of that win uh, the other night against Clemson, this could be a really dangerous league and a very fun league and not just for the other teams, but for the Cajuns as well. You want this league to be strong for us. We talk about making a regional. You can't make a regional in a weak league, right? Especially where we are. So you want those teams to beat those P5 teams. You want those teams to continue to win because that'll help us if we take care of business against those particular teams, that helps our chances as well. Again, nine and seven, 19th toughest schedule in the country. And that's only going to get better if we keep winning games. So I like the direction this league is going very optimistic and it should be a very, very fun conference schedule coming up starting at Troy this weekend. Yeah, I'll add on to that, Jerry, real quick. So uh, you're talking about multiple bid league. I agree 100%. What's even more impressive about that is the fact that you know, Sunbelt was was good in baseball before other other programs, big programs started really investing. So, yeah, we had multiple big, you know, bid. We were a multiple bid league way back in the day, and we had really strong programs when other, you know, um, Clemson maybe wasn't investing in, in spring sports as much as they are now. So for us to be back into the discussion of a number five RPI in the country, that's huge, man, um, for, for, you know, other teams that are now investing in baseball, and we've been doing it all the time and we're keeping up and beating some of them so that's really impressive and also you're talking about rankings i really think we are three wins or, or, th or i should say three losses really cost us being ranked i mean you think about had we beaten arkansas we should have beaten indiana i don't know what the hell that was and then you look at you know if we maybe won two out of three from southern miss we're in that ranking discussion we may not be ranked in the top 25 but they're talking about us so we're not that far but man we gotta we gotta do something with the pitching that's that's worrying me a little bit as we as we start conference play nick you mentioned indiana a team that we felt like we could beat in Round Rock. Deggs pulled some strings, and that's a debate for a different time, but we ended up losing that game. Indiana went down to Troy and got swept. That's another league team with an impressive weekend against a Big Ten school. And I didn't think Indiana was terrible. I think they're very capable offensively. 
But Troy really just chopped him up. So that was interesting. Georgia Southern beat Mercer last night. Mercer's is, you know, 11.7 podcast calls them America's team, which I love that because they are. They, they knock off big team after big team. Uh, Mercer does every year, it seems like. That's another quality program. But uh, staying in the league, and then we'll move on. Just last quick comment. Texas State, terrifying. They, they're one through nine. They can hit the baseball. Wool, Woolrich? Uh, Wolfrich, I can never pronounce the guy's name properly, but he's back, and he's absolutely on fire. They've got a young third baseman. I think his last name is Pena, crushing the baseball. They've got pitching. They've got – they have middle relief like no other p- uh, pitching staff in the league, to, in, in my view, so far. And then you have, I mean, a major league closer in Sivers. We have to go to San Marcos. I think it's the second-to-last series this season. Texas State, man, I'm telling you, they're ranked 15th in the country for a reason. Yeah, I will say I am glad we face them later in the season because it uh, gives us a chance to get our pitching house in order. Um, but, hey, props to Texas State for for reminding uh, the entire country why everybody hates Texas in that first game. You know, Texas waving at their dugout and then, uh, yeah, getting a little bit of, re- of revenge. And um, I think they're now on a three-game losing streak, Texas is. So uh, props to them for, uh, for reminding us why we hate Texas. And, you know, real quickly to add on to that, uh, besides Texas State, Josh, you brought up Georgia Southern beating Mercer last night. You know, Georgia Southern, I don't know if you know this, but their RPI right now is fourth in the nation. They have their their strength of schedule is number three. And not to mention they're sitting with an 11-6 record and also split a midweek series with Georgia, who's ranked number 20. So it's a very impressive resume that Georgia Southern has. And like you said about the, the, the series, the series where the Cajuns have to go to San Marcos, luckily for us, Georgia Southern comes to Lafayette um, so one good thing about the conference schedule with the Cajuns is that really the tough opponents you know the South the South Alabama's and the Georgia Southern's come to Lafayette come to Russo Park so that's going to be huge for us big home series should have good crowds out there but no Texas State is a good team uh, again they're ranked in the top 25 they have played viciously against really good quality competition. So it's only a testament to this league. I mean, when Georgia Southern is beating quote unquote America's team and taking care of Georgia, as well as having the number four RPI and the three third best strength of schedule. And then you got schools like Texas state doing what they're doing. And then Troy sweeping Indiana, something we couldn't do. We couldn't beat Indiana. Right. And it's just a testament to this league. So I'm looking forward to that. And um, hopefully again, these teams guys just have to keep winning. And then we have to take care of business when we face those teams, right? So it's it's setting up, it's st- it's setting us us up for for some good things if we do our job, right? It's like Coach Tony Robichaud always used to say: we can look at the external factors, but at the end of the day, we got to take care of us. We got to worry about us. And so it's it's look like I've always talked about with you, Josh, lobbing up softballs. These teams' resumes are lobbing softballs up to us. Now it's up to us to execute and hit it out the park by beating them and playing good baseball once they uh, once they land on our schedule. Yeah, and even better is that Texas State is in the West. I mean, we needed a boost out West because, look, let's face it, it's it's been a little bit watered down. So that's great for us. It's great for our strength of schedule, and it's great for our opportunities to continue to get better and improve our own resume. Also, Something that's really great is that you got South Al and Georgia Southern coming to the friendly confines of the Cajun Cathedral. I'm excited about those series. I mean, you always get a great turnout for South Al, but uh, we, you know, we've said it before. Our home schedule this year is outstanding. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, let's bring it back home all the way. Out of conference series with, uh, with Houston this past weekend. We previewed and we kind of said that Houston was a little bit of an enigma. Uh, on paper, they 
they, they weren't living up to their potential. Um, the eye test also was kind of iffy. I'm curious to see what you guys think about what you thought uh, or, or what you saw at the park uh, this past weekend. I can tell you from my personal view, they did not pass the eye test for me. I didn't think they were very good. You know, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. On paper, they're fielding 980 going into that weekend, and we think, wow, this is a great defensive team. We better strap it up tight. While they didn't commit a ton of errors, they looked shaky in the field, especially the left side of their infield. There were a few rulings that could have gone hit or error. They ended up giving our, our hitters uh, hits, and some of that is home cooking, and I'm happy about that. I want us to get hits. I want us to get our averages up. I want our confidence to be great. But at the same time, I mean, I thought Houston had a shaky defense. I thought their left fielder had a couple of struggles out there. I was very underwhelmed by their catcher, who offensively came to play, but, you know, pass balls, uh, uh, just unaware of things going on around the diamond uh, at times. What did you see, guys? What did you guys see with Houston defensively first, and then we'll move on to the offense? I just saw the fact that we were putting the ball in play. I saw the fact that we were hitting. You know, we finally put the ball in play that allowed us to get base hits, especially on Sunday. Um, I thought Houston's defense was, they were okay. I mean, I didn't see anything that made me say, oh my gosh, they're, they're, they're world beaters. But I, I thought that they were fundamentally sound. I mean, look, Houston, even though they didn't look the most impressive against us, I mean, look, they, the other night they beat Texas A&M after getting uh, schlacked by us on Sunday. I mean, they went to college station one, eight to two. So they're not a bad team, right? I think it's more of a Testament of us. I think it's the fact that we're playing better baseball. We're getting the hits our pitching for the most part, you know, on Sunday by Jeff Wilson, probably one of the best pitching performances I've seen in a long time by any, any Cajuns pitcher. Right. So I think Houston is a barometer in my opinion. I think they're a barometer of what we're expected to see in conference. I think they're kind of one of those teams that, they're going to be kind of, if they were to play in the Sun Belt, they would be a top three, top four team. Um, I think they're a good test. I think they were, I think they fit perfectly on the schedule setting up for conference because you're going to be seeing some of those teams in the conference that you're going to be playing Little Rock and ULM that maybe not be as good, no disrespect to those programs, but then you're going to play the Georgia Southerns and the Texas States. And I would probably put Houston in that area so i think they're you know the eye test yeah they didn't look the most impressive but i also think that was a compliment to our baseball team and the way we showed up uh i thought we played more aggressive uh degs even said it you know he said it for the sunday game do you want the game to come to you or do you want to go take it and i think we took it and it's that style of degs play that we're used to and we love to see and we've been waiting for so yeah, I mean, look, Houston, again, they beat Texas A&M the other night 8-2, to two, even though it's a midweek game. Going to College Station and doing that is impressive. So I, I think they're a good team. I, I think it's just the fact that we played a level higher than what we've seen, and hopefully that can add to this weekend and beyond for us, right? So it's a little bit of both. Um, I, I, just thought, I just thought on Sunday we played – I mean, obviously we played the best game of the season, but also – we played to our capability of, of, and it showed us the potential of the type of dangerous team we can be. Just got to get the pitching order <laughs> yeah. or pitching in order uh, moving forward. Yeah, I agree with you, uh, Jerry. I think they're middle of the pack Sunbelt right now. Maybe, maybe a little on the higher tier, uh, maybe four, 
maybe um, on a good day. I think they looked a little bit like we did the last couple of seasons where some days we looked like the bad news bears. Um, but honestly, we should have swept that team. And and I'll talk a little bit about, um, you know, trends and, and our tr- we're trending up in the hitting department. Um, definitely. You can see that progress through the season. Um, but, you know, looking at, we should have swept this team on Saturday. A, a big inning costs us the game. If we, if you don't allow four runs in the fifth, uh, we didn't score one run after that. So um, I think we should have swept that team. I think we are going to sweep a couple teams in conference this year. Don't know who they are yet. We'll see. Uh, that's yet to be told. Um, and I think uh, us against Troy will be a good litmus test. And I think uh, this weekend we'll know how good Houston is by uh, based on our performance this coming weekend. Yeah, and Saturday, I agree with you. Nick, I think that, you know, I, I really like Drew Schifflet a lot. I'm maybe his only remaining fan here. I just think he's struggling to find the zone because he's pressing. And that that fifth inning went pretty far south pretty quickly. Uh, you know, you hate to see it. I think he's got a ton of talent, and we could certainly use him in the rotation. Um, I'm going to go back to Friday, and I'll say that, you know, first pitch, you give up a bomb to, to lead off the game, and I, it's one run. It's not a big deal. But if you look at it from a 30,000-foot view, you go into a series like that where you think you're better than the team in the very first pitch, you have an opportunity to drag your head on that. I love the fact that we came back and put a three spot up. I love that. I love the way that, you know, in that fourth inning, we, we, we gave up a four run, a four spot, but we gave up, we had two errors in the inning. We walked people, we hit people. And, and then we turned around and the immediate following inning, we scored. And then in the sixth, you know, rock, uh, rock hit the home run to tie the game before, it got suspended. I thought that was a major point in that game. You know, we had to finish on Saturday morning. And, of course, that eighth was wild with stealing home and, and just pushing runners all over the field. That was great. I love to see that kind of baseball. That's the baseball that I expect from a Dex team. But I expected to take that momentum into game two. And, you know, to a large degree, we just did not do it. I know we scored in the second inning, and we, we nickel and dimed, and we gave our chance we gave ourselves chances to score in almost every inning, if not every inning. So to your point about trending up offensively, look, McNeese, we played last night, 17 hits. Sunday against Houston, 17 hits. I mean, obviously we're starting to put the ball in play way more, and that's that's great. But just to the point specific to Saturday, like you mentioned, I thought we were a much better team. I agree we should have swept. And, you know, Rob used to say you should never expect to sweep, but, you know, Sometimes, you know, the great thing about being a fan is that you can expect whatever you want. We don't really have any bearing about what goes on on the field, but I think Saturday we kind of got in our own way, which we're doing less now. We don't want to beat ourselves. I think we're doing less of that now. I want to see more Sunday games where pitcher gives you an opportunity to win throughout the start, whether it be nine innings, seven innings, five innings. We don't beat ourselves with kick balls and bad errors. We've got to figure out second base. That's another issue later. But the point I'm trying to make is that you're correct. I think we're trending up, and I think we're doing it at a good time. I believe that those first two to three weeks of really, really steep competition is starting to pay off. Yeah, but and we're trending up, but there's a caveat. We have to be consistent, like you said. Right. We can we can get 17 hits against McNeese. What are we going to do this weekend? Are we going to, you know, go in, blow them out the water on Friday and then lay an egg on Saturday again, both on hitting and pitching? We need consistency on on both sides. So I'm hoping to see that, you know, that's what I want to see this weekend. 
Yeah, and also too, I mean, fielding wise, uh, we made a few errors uh, the um, last weekend, and and it, it was just very not. It was wasn't. It's not a normal thing for us because defensively, we have been playing pretty consistently. Uh, last year, we let a few games get away because of fielding errors. And I noticed this year, it, they've been a lot lower up to this point, but yet we're still making some boneheaded mistakes. I think against good teams, especially good teams in the conference, you can't do that. You can't do that and give other teams runs, right? And look, I'm all excited that the fact that, you know, I think our lineup is really start starting to solidify itself, hitting the ball and getting runs in. Like we saw it last night against Magnese. Magnese makes a rally, what, in the seventh inning, goes up seven to five. The way our pitching was, I'm sitting there going, well, we lost this game. We're not going to come back from this because we can't pitch. They may compound on it and score more runs and win 10 to five. Didn't happen. We had some, uh, some of the relievers come in like Chipper who, you know, got the job done. And as Rob would say, minimize the damage. And we had a huge eighth inning, right? But in a midweek game, you can get away with that. You can't get away with that this weekend at Troy. You can't get away with that when South Alabama comes to town. You can't get away with that when you go play uh, Texas State in San Marcos. So you have to fix those now. Uh, Hopefully, uh, I I just hope that that improves sooner than later because you're going to let two or three or maybe four games slip away by making just fundamental errors that shouldn't be happening. So like Nick said, we need to improve on the pitch. I mean, definitely need to improve on the pitching. And in fielding-wise, we cannot make boneheaded mistakes. Speaking of pitching, Jeff Wilson was absolutely incredible. Uh, You probably have to go back to Connor Cook at Southern Miss to get a a better performance or or a similar performance, and that's been a long time. We got spoiled on the robe, and it would happen regularly, but nowadays it's few and far between. So... I uh, just wanted to give uh, Big J. Will a, a, a big shout-out. Uh, he just recently followed the podcast, too, so want to make sure that he gets a shout-out. Now we got a new listener. Sunday was a complete performance. I thought that we looked – I mean, we dominated. The bats constantly just bludgeoned him to death. I kept telling Catherine that this is how you you stick the knife in and twist it. This is how you do it. This is a Dex team. We don't really spend – we don't need to spend too much time on that because everybody – yeah, it was pretty obvious that we were better. Uh, but McNeese, you mentioned McNeese. Let's get into it just a little bit. Havard looked great, and uh, I know that pro- people probably wanted to see him go longer than two innings, but I know that Deggs wanted to see a couple of pitchers between Wilson and not, and, you know, Wilson going a complete game and us not playing our midweek games because of weather. You know, we needed to get some bullpen guys some work, which we were able to do. Unfortunately, you know, Hayden still can't find the zone. Uh, man, we need that guy to figure it out. And, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things where, Jerry, you know, I was very vocal about this last year. I thought that mentally the way that they handled him at Southern Miss was so dangerous and I think that that fruit has come to bear I I don't know where his head's at I don't think the staff knows where his head's at that is very concerning because we are way too thin to not have talented guys like that be able to contribute to this baseball team and it's really not a good thing and I don't want to spend too much time on Dirk but I'd love to get you guys opinion on that but or going a little bit further about pitching. I thought everybody else stepped up. Chipper looked as good as he's looked in 2022, which is huge for our pitching staff. We have got to have that guy going well in order to compete later in the season and to make a postseason run. Yeah. At, at any point in that game, did you feel like, oh, man, we're just going to roll over because this offense can't compete? I'll tell you that I never felt that way. I never felt that we just were going to mail it in and we didn't have the firepower to come back. And obviously we didn't. We put a four spot up in the top of the eighth. So, and then we tacked on a run in the ninth. There's something about that. There's a mentality about this offense that you can really see some confidence and some fight. I think that's 100% due to Deggs, 
obviously some of the kids, but I think that the mentality that he's trying to instill in the offense and these ball players, I think that's where it shows brightest is when you get knocked down, you, you give up six runs in two innings. Can you get off the mat and, and fight back? Yeah, that is something we were lacking for four games um, this this season. And, and UCI, we lost that game. We get five runs in the fifth. We didn't score another run after Indiana seven run third. We scored three late, but that really, I mean, it was, it was too late at that point. Arkansas give up a three run, run homer in the eighth Houston four runs in the fifth and, and don't score after that. So um, I like what I saw last night. Um, all I can, man, all I can think at this point, honestly, is with Rocco being Rocco and Max is not even in the lineup. Wait till Max. What is that going to look like, man? That is going to be a dangerous lineup um, that we wouldn't. I mean, you know, three weeks ago we were like, man, I mean, they're 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 the same old team they've been the last two years. But I like the fight. I like the Wolfpack mentality. I know it doesn't sit well with everyone, and some people don't like the rah rah from from Degs. Um, but I think you give him time, and he's he'll get the results, and you're seeing those results now. Um, so um, happy to see that last night. Uh, man, uh, Chipper, you know, a, as much crap as, as our fans have given him and uh, maybe deservedly, um, you know, it was good to see him go out there. What did he have like four strikeouts in a row? Um, that, that was impressive and, and happy to see that. So really, uh, really happy to see um, what I saw last night. Tally still has me a little concerned um, with the, the solo homer he gave up. Um, you know, his fastball has movement. And I think Top even said it on the on the uh, on the broadcast. When he gets it up, he has no movement. He's pitching BP, and he got it up, and and he made one mistake, and there was a homer, and he's got to fix that. That has got got to be something he focuses on uh, to try to fix. But um, but yeah, I think all our pitching woes are mental, and hopefully uh, hopefully last night for Chipper was a a good step in the right direction for him. Yeah, I think what scared me a little bit was in the first inning we we put up four runs basically with our eyes closed, and I my first thought was, okay, let's, let's take advantage of this. Let's score another three or four runs in the next two or three innings. You'll be up seven or eight runs and you can pretty much cruise. But unfortunately we gave up that six run rally in those two innings uh, in the fifth and the sixth. But the way we responded was, was pretty much what I've been waiting for for a long time or really all season. Uh, like you said, Nick, there were a few games where we had that chance and we just not only, I mean, we, we didn't do it. We didn't get on base. We didn't really get any big hits. And, and I think what's more impressive about the rally we, we we pulled off last night is, like you said, I mean, hitting is contagious. Uh, it is very contagious. Josh, you've mentioned that many times. And over the last two games with those 17 hits, it's not the fact that we're getting hits. It's who's getting the hits. I mean, just the other day, I mean, look at Heath Hood. Heath Hood started off the season, I think, three for 25, and he's batted 600, I think somewhere around 600 ever since. Uh, you look at guys like Warner, Warner Rinconis, who could barely get on base, barely make contact with the ball. He's gotten a bunch of RBIs over the last couple of days. Julian Brock, I said it from the first weekend that he could be the MVP, not only from, from uh, being catching behind the plate, but hitting the ball. He's starting to hit the ball. So Connor Kimple, being Connor Kimple, he's starting to hit the ball. And of course, Carson Rockefort, the way he's playing right now, he may not see a senior year. And of course, Kyle DeBarge, you know, the, the reputation we talked about him in the fall and he's, he's lived up to it. It's very hard to live up to expectations like that, but he has both on the field and at the plate when, when he's hitting the ball. So I, everybody's kind of clicking and, and that's huge. Uh, it makes a good point about Marshak about what do we do with him when he comes back? I mean, even when CJ Willis, 
CJ Willis comes in and pinch hits, he gets on base and and and, and pulls off a few hits a few RBIs. So that, that's huge. That it could, this could not have happened at a better time. Now I don't want to jinx it. I'm going to knock on wood right now that this continues at Troy uh, this weekend. But from what we've seen the last two days, um, it's not the fact that we're getting that many hits. Again, it's the fact that it's who's hitting the ball uh, in spite, even if a guy, one guy goes cold, you can expect at least two or three other guys to back them up. That's what I'm looking for. Cause obviously not everybody's going to be consistent in this game. Right. So it's, it, you know, when I look at the one through nine lineup, really everybody's getting hits. That's what's so exciting about what we're seeing right now. And again, it could not happen at a better time. So we're going to find out what happens at Troy this weekend, but if this continues, this can be a very dangerous series. Now, again, pitching uh, real quickly, you know, it's scary to me that we don't have a Saturday starter. Um, that is a little concerning to me. Whoa, I think whoa. Tommy Ray. We do have a Saturday uh, starter. Well, but we, we we just had one, though, but we, we're, we're still kind of, you know, we're, we're throwing it up in the air for the most part, right? Usually right. it's the Friday and Saturday guy where you kind of solidify who you want, and then it's always the Sunday guy that you decide at the last minute this is where we're going. Now, Jeff Wilson has solidified his Sunday spot, unless he wants a promotion to Saturday, right? But at the same time uh, with Tommy Ray. Tommy Ray didn't have his best game last week, right? But I'm look, they're willing to give him another chance. If, if he responds effectively this weekend, you can always have a bad game, right? So – it's a little concerning to me, the weekend rotation, uh, Josh, we've talked about that uh, off the record or well, we'll say off the record, but you know, when we're not on the air here on our pod, but I've said it, the biggest concern for me is a weekend rotation. You got to solidify that like now. Um, so hopefully, uh, hopefully we see some progress. Hopefully Tommy Ray responds this weekend compared to last weekend. Hopefully Jeff continues what he did or what he's been doing, but the Saturday, the Saturday slot is a little concerning to me. Um, you know, I always I'm one of those fans that just likes to win the series on Saturday and cruise on Sunday. So, um, you know, if we keep if we don't have a consistent pitcher on Saturday, you know, we might see more of what we saw in that second game against Houston. And of course, as fans, we don't want that. So but but yeah, go ahead, Josh, Who, who's who's starting? Tell everybody who's starting on Saturday. Well, I think it's pretty common knowledge now. And, uh, you know, they asked us to keep it to ourselves, but we're going to go Tommy two seams on Friday. We're going Brandon Talley on Saturday, and we're going Jeff Wilson on Sunday, obviously. We've all seen Brandon Talley go long relief, five, six innings at times. I have no doubt that he can be a quality starter for this baseball program. Thing is, you know, he's been a little bit inconsistent in this particular season. So, I love the fact that we're going to go right, left, right. You know, old robe staple, right, left, right. Uh, Brandon Talley, the thing about Brandon is when he's on, dude is on. He can be unhittable at times. But, you know, it's like you guys mentioned. You got it. We got to keep that fastball down because if not, they start teeing off and it gets ugly quick. But I think that he's learned some tough lessons early in the season. And if, if you watch his last few outings, even though, yes, he has given up a couple of shots, uh, I think overwhelmingly it's been positive. Uh, and I, that's just me watching the games. You know, maybe he's missing some signs. Maybe he's still not locating exactly where he wants to be. Those little things, I think, will work themselves out. Either they will or they won't. He's going to get an opportunity to be your Saturday guy. He needs to go out and take it. And I think he will do that. Knowing him and knowing his dad and, and kind of knowing what they're made of, I, I think that he's going to be fine. Uh, real quick, I want to make a couple of, of comments. You mentioned Debo. Debo out in front of the, uh, the home crowd, you know, he went to Barb. He hit an absolute piss missile to left center that if he gets under it even a little bit, the ball is, you know, 430 feet. I mean, he crushed the ball. Uh, he had a good night last night. 
Uh, also, you mentioned Max, and of course we know what Max is going to do for us offensively. For me, like I said, he's one of our top five hitters, one of our top five players. What, what Max does for the lineup defensively is we get stronger defensively. You put TR back at third base. You got Max in, in center field, which if you guys remember, after we did the scrimmage in, LSU, in Baton Rouge against LSU in the fall, I watched that guy play center field for all of one inning, and I said, that's the guy. I mean, defensively, he was a wizard. He's got an absolute cannon for an arm. He's got range like nobody since maybe Kyle Olison. If you guys remember him, I'm sure Nick remembers him well. That guy had plenty of, of and Dex also, uh, you know, he had a lot of range. But, but anyway, ton of range from Marshak, and defensively, we get better. I think if Rinconis continues to hit the ball, he's your second baseman. No knock on Bobby. I know he's got a ton of potential at the plate. He's just not getting it done in the field, and we cannot go back to 2021 where literally every time out, it's a circus. It's, it's, you know, who wants to make a goofy error today? I can't watch that anymore, and we're not going to win consistently like that. We're not a 41 ball club with bad defense up the middle. You guys know that. I mean, that's, that's a staple in this program for 30 years. So I want, I want Warner, who also had a knock last night and has consistently looked more competent at the plate. I want him to continue to, to improve. I think defensively with Max back, TR at third, Rocket first also, guys. Rocket first is our best option defensively. And I think Warner is, is really starting to solidify that, that second base position. Feedback on that. I agree with you on, on Bobby. Um, 15 errors last season. He's got the three or four so far this season. So he's trending, trending that way again. And his bat's not really backing him up enough to keep him in the lineup. So I a hundred percent agree with you and look rock dudes, a dude, as, as Rob would say, the dude is a dude. You put him at first base. And, um, and I think, I think you just have our, our everyday, um, our, our everyday fielding in lineup. I think, I think that's it right there. No, I agree 100%. I mean, I was writing it down. Actually, what you said, I, I had Lede at second. I put uh, Rinconis under there in case Lede keeps making errors. Um, I like Rocco at first. He's actually, he's really done, played perfect, played the position perfectly, especially with Heath Hood being on right field. Heath Hood's played well at right field. Uh, outside another of that great one area, I, outfielder. Another great defensive outfielder. We got like five of them. He did make that. I think was it him that dropped that fly ball last week? Yeah, on Saturday. Yeah, it happens. Yeah, it happens. But but no, he's outside of that. He's made some really good catches. He's he's really covered a lot of ground there. Um, but no, Rocco at first. I think if Lede keeps making errors, I don't mind putting Warner, um, or, or yeah, Warner at second base. He's actually done a really good job at third base. He's solidified that position. But of course, T. Rob has too. Um, you know, so if once Marshak comes back, T-Rob at third base, he's done a great job there, made some really big plays. And of course, Julian Brock behind the plate. I mean, that's a, that's a gimme. But uh, yeah, as far as the infield goes, Kyle playing shortstop. I mean, he I mean, he looks like a junior, right? And it looks like an upperclassman the way he's played it so far. So we've really, really solidified the infield. So, um, you know, La, La Bobby, Bobby's got to step up. No more errors. You know, he's a bad knee. And look. You saw that home run he hit it. You know, he hit the scoreboard the other day against Houston. He's got a good bat. He just needs to get on, get on base. I mean, Warner Raconis went through the same thing up until last week, right? You know, once Bobby starts hitting the ball, I think he'll be fine. But can't make, can't make goofy errors at second base. I mean, he made a throw last night against McNeese to first base. That was, yeah, um, <laughs> wow. But it's going to happen from time to time. You just can't make it consistent. Yeah, I bet some of that's baseball, right? You know, some of that's baseball. You're not going to be perfect. I mean, look at Debo. Debo is the most, I mean, he's the most fluid, uh, gifted, rangy shortstop we've had since BT. 
and I don't even think it's close. Now, I don't love the comparisons. You know, I know it's easy to look at where they're from or whatever. I said this and kind of got a little shit for it. I think he's a, he's a higher-end Greg Fontenot when I saw him in the fall. He has improved dramatically from fall to spring. And now, if you watch him play, he's just out there having a good time. And that's fun to watch from a fan standpoint. But, but also, this guy is striking fear into to offensive, you know, if you, when you're putting together an offensive game plan, it's like, look, dude, don't hit it to that guy's area because he's going he's gonna to vacuum it up. That's fun to watch. Jerry, you mentioned Julian Brock. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna talk to Top here about Brock, and we're gonna nerd out. His his defensive stats are insane. I'm gonna wait until we talk to Top. I don't want to get into it too much, but his defensive his his defensive posture, his technique. You know, just looking at him back, back there, it's a brick wall. It's like these pitchers don't even blink. They know that Julian's gonna take care of him. And then I'm not even talking about his his uh, caught stealing numbers and him just keeping base runners honest keeping them close to the bag so that they can't be too aggressive. We haven't had that in a long time. Maybe Thurman. Maybe before Thurman. He's that good. He's a major league. He Defensively, he's a major league catcher for me. And he's only really been holding on to that starting job for, what are we, 9 and 7, I think you said? So, what, 16 games? I mean, it's absolutely insane how good he's been. Uh, I, I want people to really pay attention to Julian back there. If you If you don't come from a catcher background or you don't, you know, per se, have a trained eye to know what's good and what's not. Listen, this guy, he's incredible. And then he's starting to hit the baseball. You know, he's starting to hit the He had a three-hit night last night. And he barrels everything. He's hitting missiles at people most of the season. Now, I know he kind of got off to a slow start there, but I would say after about game six, you can see the potential. You can see him just knocking it around the park, you know, just getting a little bit unlucky again. That's baseball. Yeah, one of my favorite, uh, I don't know who who said it, but someone said it while watching him the other day, and they kind of laughed at this. They said, huh, they're actually going to try to run on this guy? Like, they're, they're actually trying to steal second. They're trying against Brock. So, yeah, no, uh, he's he's a great player. It's fun to watch him um, and interesting uh, interested to see what happens the rest of the season with him because, um, yeah, he's he's a good one. He might break the records for the uh, number of caught stealings uh, ever by a, a Cajuns catcher, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, he's got a rocket arm. I enjoy watching him try to pick guys off, stealing second base. I mean, his 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 accuracy is ridiculous. He he epitomizes the work while you wait uh, mantra of, of Robe because uh, he's been. This is what his third season here. Um, you know, he's waited his turn. There've been opportunities he's been given, but really hasn't come to full full fruition. And the thing is, he hasn't peaked. He has. He's still got room to grow, I and mean, that's what's crazy about it, especially with his bat. So. Um, no, like you said, he's, <laughs> he's got a laser or he's got a rocket arm. Uh, his, his outs have been hard outs and it's only going to get better because, you know, I, I, and I'm, I'm kind of guessing here, but I don't think we're going to be facing pitching in conference that we've seen, uh, in places like round rock against Southern miss and against UC Irvine. So he's got an opportunity to get even better. So I'm excited. I'm excited about that. All right, guys, let me pull top in here to talk about Julian, uh, He's about the only other person that's going to get as geeky about catching as, as I am. So, Brad, top him. If anybody doesn't know, he's a former Cajun catcher, and he's the color analyst on the broadcast for b- baseball on 96.5 KPL. Brad, thanks for joining me for a second. What's going on, man? I know you guys are on the road, so I appreciate you uh, taking the time. Oh, anytime we can talk catching, I'm happy to do it. Same here. So, 
Before we get into Julian, I have a question. Uh, I was sitting at the game the other day, and I, it, this came up. I've been noticing, and I've been noticing this over the last few years. You know, back when I was coming up, and maybe you as well, the teach used to be, you know, stick your glove out there, present a target, and leave that target up for the pitcher. I've been noticing, Julian does this as well, but I've been noticing a lot of our opponents. They'll show the target, and then they'll touch dirt before they pick the target back up. Do you have any idea what's behind that teach? Is that just a tick? Is it something that's just kind of unexplainable? I'm curious about that. So the only logic behind it, you know, I was always, when we were taught, and again, I spent some time in JUCO with the, um, one of our former players in JUCO, that was a roving catch instructor for the Indians. And he came to talk to us and he said, they taught a trigger. But it doesn't matter what your trigger is. It could be drop the glove. It could be turn the glove. Just something to relax your hand and don't just leave your glove wide open. The pitcher doesn't need that. And the only thing I can tell you is there has been the movement sometimes to get your thumb under everything and putting your glove to the ground makes you come up to everything, if that makes sense. That's the only logic behind it. Um, I haven't got too deep into it, but I know Cressy was teaching that. Because you remember, if you remember watch for a while, a lot of it was pull everything into your body. For a little while, all of a sudden you saw college catchers, they were pulling everything into the, into their uh, in between the legs, into their stomach. Right. And then I, I've seen what you're talking about, and my only thing I can come up with, up, it'll pull the low pitch up. Very interesting. Okay. Uh, I'm going to dig into that, and maybe we'll talk about it again on a, a more long-form interview. Talking about Julian, obviously, you know, I know you and I are probably a little bit biased, but I don't think we do enough to highlight how good Julian really is. I don't, I don't think we've done it for a long time. I think Thurm did some really great things technique-wise. I thought he, he really impacted the game in a lot of ways that, that went unspoken about. And I think that Julian's doing the same thing. Why is Julian so good defensively? You've mentioned it in the broadcast. I mean, he's one of the nation's best catchers defensively. Uh, not even talking about his his ability at the plate, just behind the plate. Uh, wh- what's made him so great so so quickly? Uh, you know, there's some mechanics there that someone taught him some good mechanics early. Uh, again, personally, I don't like all the movement all most catchers do these days. I thought Thurm was tremendous at being quiet for being a six three guy. See, Thurm reminded me a lot of Paul Bosco, more of a longer, leaner guy. And Julian, I keep calling Julian built like a linebacker. And the thing is, so often you find catchers with quick feet, like last year. You know, Osborne had quick feet and he was accurate. Or you find guys that are a little slower that have absolute cannon. Brock's the combination. He gets rid of the baseball like he's, you know, an 82 to 84 behind the plate. But he's coming out 88, 89. And as important, and this is the part that gets lost on so many people when they clock them, you know, like, oh, he's a 1-8, oh, he's a 1-9. Yeah, but if it's head high, by the time I tag every time, the guy's, you know, I'm now, now I'm throwing a, a 2-1 or a 2-2. Brock, Brock keeps everything below the waist. And most importantly, if you notice, it's follow-through. Brock lets it go, and he doesn't recoil hard. He lets it go when he finishes, and his throws never run. You know how many times guys get injured if – you short arm, and I've done it before when I was catching. You recoil for whatever reason. You don't follow through. And at the last five feet, the ball tails, ball ends up in center field. You know, in fact, it's happened a couple of times for the Cajuns forcing those throws. When guys are in such a hurry, they lose their mechanics. 
And for some reason, and I can't explain it, you get in a hurry, you snap, like you throw and you snap your arm back, and you don't follow through. The follow through has absolutely nothing to do with getting rid of it in a hurry. But for some reason, when you're in a hurry, you do that. So it's a um, it's his accuracy for me. If the ball is below the waist on the bag, and he gets rid of it like he doesn't throw as hard as he does. And uh, honestly, it's just a combination. It's effortless. It looks effortless to me. It's, it's kind of the word that sticks out. You mentioned this size, 6'3", 205. He feels like 6'4", 220. I mean, the guy is a gigantic oh, human yeah. being. He's well-built. You know, I think that that helps, uh, you know, whether you want to call it optics or, or just a, a, a human element. The fact that he's so well put together, it, it almost adds to maybe the pitching staff having, I mean, just supreme confidence in him back there like a brick wall. I mean, nothing gets by the guy. I think he has two pass balls on the season. Uh, I think he's got two errors. One was a fluke throw off of a cleat, and one was a catcher interference. You know, yep. the numbers are just outstanding. I, I heard you mention on the broadcast this past week that he's not in the – He's. I can't remember exactly how you stated it. It was he's, – he's, his percentage of throwing out runners is in the top whatever it was nationally, but his attempts are not in the top ten. Can you kind of yeah, say so that I again? Yeah, so I have found the Sun Belt numbers. He has thrown out more runners than anybody by three in the Sun Belt, yet stolen bases against him are not in the attempts, are not in the top ten. So he's number one with ease in throwing guys out, but he's not even in the top ten in attempts against him. That tells you everything right there. And, and you know, you talk about the thing, it, it's a funny, you know, it's kind of a joke that certain phrases coaches will say, like, the reason a pitcher gets the win, he's 10 inches higher than everybody else. Well, the catcher's the only guy on the field everybody stares at. So, it, I think it's – I think you're right. There is a physical component, a presence component, if you will. And you know what? I think it's earned. Brock is a good kid. He's a happy kid. He tends to have a smile on his face. And that's a good demeanor for a guy who's waited his turn. You know, used the road phrase, worked while he waited, got better, and – you know, and he's here. And, and look, to be fair, I even talked to his mom about it. I actually asked her. You know, most people transfer. These days, like last year, a lot of guys like Brock would have transferred out at Christmas break when Osborne got the starting job. He went to JUCO, played every day, and then slipped right back into uh, D1 because he's a good academic kid. And we just had a nice conversation about that. That's not how he was raised. He was raised to just keep working. And I think it's paid off. And he's an example of where, sticking to it, I think it's going to pay huge dividends. Yeah, and I really enjoy watching guys that you can see the joy of playing the game. It doesn't matter if they're 18 yeah. or 30. If you enjoy playing the game, I think that you wear that on your sleeve. People can see that, and it's very obvious. He's one of those guys. Uh, not only that, he fields the position. He commands the field. It's fun to watch. I mean, look, look at how aggressive he is, and this is kind of a, a testament to how much they trust him back there. I mean, He's trying to pick off everybody, first, second, third. It doesn't matter. He's keeping guys close. That that may not impact as, as much as people realize, but when you start having the fear in a runner to not be too aggressive on the base pass, that can pay dividends over the course of a season. Well, absolutely. And the one thing I've noticed, um, I haven't watched a coach yet say, you know, don't throw it. I can think of only one occasion where he made a throw that I thought he shouldn't have. Like, in other words, it was a waste of, it was a waste of time and it could be a better chance of getting an error than getting a guy out. But my other part is what I love is I don't know if I have ever seen him arm fake 
on purpose. Like, the arm face to shorten a guy up. It's a great point. Yeah, I hate I hate when people arm face. Arm face shortens the guy. You don't want to shorten him. When you have an arm like that, what you want to do is let the guy get off and then drop the hammer on him. You want to throw behind him and get the guy out. If you arm face, you're giving away your advantage. Like, the guy's too far off. Why are you arm facing? Just throw it. And I love it. It's kind of like one of those, everybody hates the check swing. Look, if you're going to swing, swing. You're going to fail, fail full speed. He doesn't arm face. If you're going to throw it, throw it. And, again, even though throw behind, I'm probably, I, I keep track of them. I can think of three where the defender saved him. Uh, one of them was last night, Carson Rockefort, six one. It, it just doesn't happen often. And, I mean, if you count the times he's thrown, and it, it's just, it's incredible. And, by the way, the other part, too, is too, Brock, men on base, sometimes you can have pitching issues where with Brock, you're going to be on your heels. Pitcher can be walking people, but if you've got a guy on your bag, you better be moving towards your bag after every every pitch because he's going to throw the ball. And that keeps you on your toes when maybe your pitcher's struggling a little bit. Right, and you have to have supreme confidence in yourself to make those throws. I mean, you've been there. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I never played uh, at the D1 level, but I know exactly what it means to have you know guys at second and third and throw behind him at second. I mean, you he's done that a few times, and some people don't like that, and it's a little bit of a clinching moment. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of risk there, but if you've got a guy back there – that can save you a run or two. And like, like we mentioned, that can really pay dividends going forward in, in, during the course of a season. Last thing I'll let you, I'll let you get out of here, but I, my last thing is that, you know, Julian's numbers at the plate are not great. But, man, does he barrel up some pitches? You know, he's, he, I'd say for probably three weeks, he's been hitting the ball at people and hitting it hard. Uh, you're starting to see him bust out of it. Balls are starting to fall in his favor. Last night got a three-hit uh, three night. What do you think his ceiling is offensively? Because if we remember, Julian was recruited to be a hitter for the Raging Cajuns. Yeah, so for me, I think it's, it's still coming. You know, it does. age is irrelevant to some degree. It really is more about opportunity and how many at-bats you get. For example, when Kyle DeBarge is his age, he'll have 450 D1 at-bats. Julian doesn't have those at-bats. So for me... It's coming with experience, and it's the ups and downs, and it's the the really good weekend where you go five for nine and everything's a missile, and then the next weekend you face probably lesser pitching against Houston, but you but you struggle a little bit, and it's just the bouncing back from it, you know, back and forth, back and forth. But um, no, he's the guy that's barreled up more balls. This is one of those that you know we don't have it, but I really wish the major league stat of. Uh, barrel percentage and exit velocity because he's got to be top on the team because he barrels up almost everything. And even his now half the time are, are rocking somewhere. So, no, I think it's going to come. And, and, you know, the other thing is I don't think you'll see him move from the eighth spot for a reason. It gives Matt Deggs a legitimate presence at the bottom of the order. And you'll see coaches do this sometimes. We've got two spots in our lineup that's struggling. You put one in front of him, you put one behind him. And that way, you have a presence at the bottom of your lineup. You don't have a couple of dead outs. You know what I mean? And I think he can continue to do that because, look, if you want to throw fastballs to that cat in the nine hole, eight hole, excuse me, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, he's going to catch one sooner or later. And I was just getting ready to say the, bo- the bottom third of that lineup is going to get fastballs. So, uh, no, I like oh, yeah. him where he's at. And we haven't had a beefy back third in quite a while. So, 
Look, I think the lineup's going to continue to get better, but in particular, Julian is—he's an exciting player to watch, and he still has a lot of a lot of time here. Well, hopefully, shit, he might not see his senior year the way he's the way he's coming on. So, uh, but look, Brad, I really appreciate you taking the time, man. Always appreciate the knowledge, and it's fun listening to you on the on the broadcast. All right, thank you, brother. All right, guys, let's preview Troy. That's that's our next test. Uh, Troy is currently eleven and five. They're nine and one at home, which is where the games will be played in Troy, Alabama. Uh, they've got a couple of decent wins. They won a series against Kennesaw State at home. Uh, they did get skull drug by Auburn in a midweek game and also by Alabama in a midweek game. Uh, they lost a series to Jacksonville, who is a good program. It's not necessarily a, a terrible mark on their resume. Uh, but the most notable thing is that they swept Indiana, you know, kind of like we mentioned at the top. What, what do you guys expect this weekend? Now, obviously, we're going to be inserting a new Saturday starter uh, in tally, so that's going to be something that's going to be interesting to watch. You see the bats trending up. All, all of these things are, are something that we are going to be keeping our eye on. Um, from the Troy perspective, you know, they have a new coach this year, and we even said earlier in the season that Troy was going to be one of those wildcard teams to keep an, an eye on. We know that they had some talent. If you remember last year, it was one of the most contested and, and electrifying series and teams to visit the Teague. It was right after, you know, COVID restrictions were lifted and, and fans were able to get back into the Teague at full capacity. It was all, a lot of fun. And they had, some, they had some talent. They had some pitching for sure. I thought it was a very well-played series. Uh, Jerry, you were with me that, that weekend. What did you think about Troy then? And what do you think that they have returning uh, now? What do you expect? Well, I think, I think it all depends on really, um, you know, they're nine and one at home They're you know, obviously we, we're starting to get hot right now. I think it all depends on uh, how, how we respond on the road. You know, we're going to, we're going to answer a lot of questions of whether or not we're road warriors, right? Um, this is our first real road test outside of the round rock classic, but we're playing the same team, right? It's a series, a weekend series. So, um, I think we're clicking at the right time to prepare for that. I do think that, um, it's going to be interesting to see, um, if we, well, first of all, I'm hoping the weather stays cooperative. I know we have a little front coming through, but also um, the, we look, the next seven out of 10 games are on the road. Nick, what do you see in Troy? Um, you know, um, I, I think more, if anything, this weekend, I'm looking to see what our bats do and our pitching does. Um, Cause obviously we, we took two out of three from UC Irvine. Uh, I don't think Troy is a UC Irvine. I mean, they've got, again, they've got some, some decent wins on their schedule. They swept Indiana. All right. Which, which kicked our butt, Um, but nothing on their schedule really, you know, pops out at me. Like, wow, that's really impressive outside of the Indiana sweep and how good really is Indiana. I mean, you got to think we lost to them on the fluke, really one fluke inning. So um, I think this will be a good litmus test for us um, to see where we stand. I think uh, I'm happy that that they're going to get some time on the road. There is always adversity. Even if things are going your way score-wise, there's always going to be something on the road that happens that throws you for a loop and you're not expecting. Um, so going to be interested to see how, how they, um, they gel during this, uh, this long, um, you know, uh, road trip. And uh, again, I think this weekend is going to be more about us and less about Troy because we can face any team in the country. Um, 
I, I think, and, and we'll just see, you know, if we perform to our abilities and we did, we prevent that big inning um, like we did last night, we, we didn't prevent the big innings from McNeese, but we responded and, and how are we going to respond to that on the road? So it'll be interesting to see um, how they do. It's always tough to win in Troy. Um, but you know, um, I think, I think two out of three is a realistic expectation. If they don't win two out of three, I think I'll be very disappointed. Yeah. We're looking for consistency. Kind of like we mentioned, I, I think that uh, I think that you can learn a lot from. First of all, like you said, it's going to be a long road swing, and you can, you, if you can really propel yourself to having a quality road swing or not, it, it could go the opposite quickly depending on how you get started. You got so Troy has, like I said, they have a pretty deep pitching staff. I remember that from last year. They had Garrett Gaines go out and shove it up again, uh, you know, up Indiana's ass, and really just set the tone for that weekend. He can pitch. Uh, I, I, we've gotten to the point in the Sun Belt where everybody's got a Friday guy. Everybody's got an ace, somebody that can go down and, and really set a team down and, and change the way that they go into a series and change the way they feel about themselves offensively. Everybody has that. Can you weather that storm? Can you nickel and dime a team on the road? You know, can you go in there and, and scratch for one, two, three runs in the first six innings and, and kind of put some pressure back on the home team? That's what I want to see. I want to see guys like Warner. I want to see guys like Heath. Well, Heath is absolutely scorching hot. But I want to see guys like Julian, Warner. And, and look, if, if it's going to be Bobby, uh, Bobby, that's fine. He's got a couple of bombs lately, some big hits lately. But still, it's, it's just not where it needs to be. I want to see guys like that step up in big moments and have big licks because that's how we've been winning. We've been getting guys to get clutch hits and, and you know, kind of break the backs of teams. That's what we need. So I want to see those guys start to continue and, and really – solidify their positions and solidify that lineup. So one through nine can be a threat. That's what I want to see. But we are going to have to compete against a really good pitching staff coming up this weekend. And look, Indiana, say what you want. They're offensively capable. So you look at the numbers this weekend. It wasn't, there was no light show. Okay. Indiana scored a run, four runs, four runs. That's what Troy is capable of doing. So let's, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how, we're just going to continue to be the, ta- the same team, game in and game out, show up, play Cajun baseball. Jerry? I think you made a good point about that, and I was just about to say it before you just mentioned it. Indiana really didn't do much offensively against Troy, and that's concerning to me because that just tells you that Troy has good defense. They have good pitching, good enough, right? I mean, we couldn't do that against Indiana defensively. So, Again, I go back to the fact that I think our hitting starting to click at the right time because technically against a team like Troy, it has to. Um, when you go on the road to a place where they don't lose or they, at their place they don't lose, you I mean, technically you have to have offense, right? And we can't run into these slumps where we score three or four runs the first few innings and then don't score the rest of the game. You, you do that against Troy and they take advantage of it. You're not going to see what you saw last night. You're not going to see a eighth inning rally against Magnese midweek pitching. You're going to be playing against some decent weekend pitchers at Troy where you're not going to be able to rally like that. So I hope that we can um, just play more consistent. The one through nine uh, of our lineup can be more consistent throughout the game, um, throughout the nine innings, instead of just, you know, hanging four or five runs the first two innings and then just going scoreless the rest of the way. Um, I'm going to be looking for the consistency of the bats. That's what I'm going to be looking for. Same thing happened against Arkansas, right? Scored three runs the first three or four innings, couldn't respond. Uh, we let a few games get away like that. So it's going to be interesting. We'll find out and, um, you know, we'll see how the bats do uh, if we can go the full nine in those three games. Letting that Arkansas W 
elude us is really hurting right now because they've returned to the number one team in the country. That would have been a, a great shot in the arm for our RPI, but I digress. Uh, looking ahead to Troy, going to be a good weekend. It's going to, it's like Nick said, it's a good litmus test for where we're at right now. I think Troy is a middle of the pack uh, type of baseball team right now, mostly because there's a lot of unknowns about Troy. I think they have the potential to get much better in a hurry. So it's going to be interesting no matter what. Uh, yesterday, our softball team took on the number 25-ranked Texas Longhorns at Lampson. And uh, look, didn't go the way we wanted it to go. This week for softball, we're going to bring in Rory Strentz. He is the creator and host of Roarman's Raging College Softball Podcast. Rory does a great job. He follows the team intimately. Uh, he's got a couple of really good interviews with one in particular, Allison Habits. Uh, coach of Georgia Southern and Georgia State that you can find on there. He does a really good job with his pod. So you guys go give him a listen. Give him some uh, some run on the on the old listener button there and 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 listen to what he's got to say. He, he really does a good job with his research and, and, and very educated on Raging Cajun softball. Without further ado, Rory Strentz. Rory, last night, you know, doubleheader with Texas. There was a feeling in the Raging Review family that it, it almost – felt like, you know, and you hate to use the term a must win, but it felt like a pretty important day for Cajun softball in 2022. Do you think that that's accurate and fair? And how do you come away from those two games feeling today? Sure. I think it's a fair assessment, you know, having lost two games to Alabama, two games to LSU, another opportunity to beat a, you know, a power five team. Texas was coming in and to be honest with you, uh, Texas was not having a very good year up to this point. They were 16 and nine, 16, nine and one, uh, got off to a very slow start. There was some question marks about some of their pitching, some of their hitting. So I think it was a good opportunity for the Cajuns to, uh, you know, if not get a split, win both games, unfortunately that did not turn out. Um, it just seems like, uh, for the fifth game in a row against the power five team, uh, the Cajuns let an inning blow up on them. And in my podcast, I mentioned that it's a famous Tony Robichaux quote. If you let your pet monkey on your back uh, get, get going crazy, it's going to turn into King Kong. And don't let your little pet monkey turn into King Kong. And it happened for the fifth time. I mean, one inning, Texas scored seven runs. Now, let me say that the beginning of the game just didn't go the Cajuns' way. I mean, they had an opportunity to score some early runs. Uh, Texas started their freshman pitcher, Sophia Simpson, who happened to play high school ball with Sam Landry last year at Barbers Hill High School. Uh, she entered the circle and to me, she looked like she was about to have a nervous breakdown. I mean, she was just not prepared. She was all over the place and the Cajuns loaded the bases with no one out. She then threw a wild pitch. Jenna King scored from uh, third to make it one to one. Unfortunately, uh, I think it was the next hitter uh, hit a, a fly ball to center field. Uh, Sophie Piscus was at third base. Uh, she took off. She scored, but she was called out for leaving early, two outs, and then the next batter struck out. So you have the bases loaded with nobody out to get against the pitcher, a freshman pitcher who was just, again, nervous as could be, and they only scored one run. So there was a huge opportunity there. I mean, if they score three runs and the score is three to one, it's a whole different ball game. I totally agree with that. Uh, I would say this, you mentioned the blow up innings and it's kind of become a trend with this particular team. I know it's easy to go ahead and point at youth. And I know we are not the healthiest team, but 
What do you attribute to mental errors, essentially, is what it amounts to? Why do you think this team has such an issue with letting the monkey become King Kong? Well, last night, there were a couple of errors that were committed. Um, I know the left field of the, in, of the infield, the third baseman, the shortstop, are not playing up to their potential and how Glasgow would like to have them play. I think over a two-game stretch combined, they had made six errors. So uh, that is an issue. Uh, the pitching, you know, the pitching has been questionable at times. I know that last night, um, Kendra had only given up one hit going into the sixth inning. And when she came out in the sixth, she actually gave up two singles in a row to the first two hitters. And it just kind of looked to me like she had kind of tired out a little bit. And I have not seen that from her in the past. So she is pulled and Megan Shorman gets in and uh, she walks the first batter to load the bases. Then she walks the second batter to, to, to send in a run. And uh, Megan is kind of like, a box of chocolate. Sometimes you just don't know what you're going to get. I mean, sometimes she comes in and she does really well. Other times she comes in and she does not so well. Now, when she came in the second game last night, she did great, I thought. I mean, she gave up two runs. I don't even know if they were earned, but uh, she pitched really well the second game. The first game, again, she came in and she walked two batters. And then Carly Heath, uh, you know, the bases were loaded. Uh, not a very well hit ball, but a ball that found the grasp between uh, our behind third and between left and uh, the left fielder mishandled the ball and all three runs scored. And then she gave up a three run homer uh, a couple of batters later. And all of a sudden the Cajuns have seven runs. So it just all kind of snowballs when it gets rolling. Yeah. In this sport that happens, you know, you mentioned pitching um, Shoreman has been up and down, you know, Kendra lamb, you know, for the body of work in this season, You've got some high highs and some low lows from what we've expected or what we thought we would expect. What was the actual expectation going in as far as the pitching staff, top to bottom? Did we feel like we had the arms to make a, a deep run in the postseason? Did we know we were going to have, and when I say we, I'm talking about the coaching staff, obviously. Did they think that we were going to be a top-end pitching team, or did they expect some growing pains? I think it's a little bit of both. I think last year, Kandra, you know, uh, of course, you had Summer, who was considered the ace. I actually think that Kandra was the ace number two. I think they were kind of like 1A and 1B. Kandra had a great season last year. And if you remember in the uh, the regional against LSU, she shut, she shut out LSU two to nothing. She threw a three hitter. So she's capable of doing it. Um, for whatever reason, again, it, she hasn't been as solid as I think she has been in the past. She's had a couple of control issues that she had kind of gotten rid of. Um, and then you have Sam Landry, who was the highly touted freshman. Now, last night, you know, she was really not expected to pitch. She has had some shoulder issues, a sore shoulder. Um, she has not pitched for probably a week and a half or so. And it's just one of those situations where they're being very careful with her because she's in this for the long term, not the short term. Uh, she was, um, by her doctors, given the uh, authority to go ahead and throw some pitches. And when she got into the game last night, it was going to be a short leash for her, a very limited pitch count. She did pitch two innings. Um, she gave up a home run to the second hitter, just threw a fat pitch over the middle of the plate. And that's going to happen when you're playing that type of team. But other than that, I thought she did really well. Then Shorman comes in and did much better than she did the first game. So your question is, coming into the year, what was expected of the pitching staff? 
I really expected Kendra to really do a great job this year. Uh, she's done a good job at times, like you mentioned, other times she has not. I knew that Sam Landry had a lot of potential. Of course, she was the number, one of the top five recruits in the nation. She comes here. I think she has done well. Last night, she was throwing with a lot of spin. Her off-speed was working. Uh, that off-speed she pitched, pitch that she has is just an incredible pitch. It's going to get out it's a lot devastating. of It's devastating. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was effective last night. Uh, let's see. Uh, then you've got Shorman. I didn't really know a lot about Shorman. You know, she pitched at Kentucky. Uh, the Kentucky coach said that she's one of the hardest throwers she has ever had. And the Kentucky coach is a really good pitching coach. Again, she's done well at times. She has done not so well at other times. Uh, you have Vanessa Foreman and Carly Heath. Uh, Vanessa is a left-hander, kind of gives a different look. But the truth about Vanessa is she cannot throw the ball more than 61 miles an hour. So she really has to rely on an off-speed pitch. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, Carly Heath, you know, she pitches now and then. Uh, she pitched last night and did not do well. So uh, it's, it's to be honest with you, I thought it would be a little bit better than it is, of course. You know, let's, let's all take a look at the fact that there is a new pitching coach. I'm very happy that Justin Robichaud is here. Uh, he's kind of learning on the job, uh, to be honest with you. And uh, when it's all said and done, he's going to end up being a great pitching coach. But, you know, I'm sure he's trying to figure it out as well. And that should not go unmentioned. I mean, there's anytime there's a change and uh, a lack of continuity, to, to, to kind of be honest, there's going to be some sort of, you know, call it a growing pain. But it, it is a change is always going to bring about unforeseen things. Um, but I think Justin's going to be fine. I want to ask about the offense seemingly sputtering uh, against, in particular, these these top 25 programs that we're playing. Something that we're not used to around here, obviously. Uh, it, what is it that you think about this offense? Do do you think that it's just a change in philosophy with Glasgow that that maybe doesn't produce the, the you know, high run counts that we are used to seeing? I mean, obviously, you go play in the, the Mamba, the, uh, I forget what it's called, the Mardi Gras Mambo tournament, and you, you crush these smaller teams that are not awful, but I mean, they're not on the level of a Raging Cajuns program. But when you go and you play, uh, now, now last night's second game, we were a lot more competitive, I thought, at the plate. And like you mentioned, in the first game, we gave ourselves some chances. Still, even, even still, you, you expect to see a team like the Raging Cajuns score more runs, even against an LSU, even against a Bama, even against a Texas. What's, what is the difference between this offense and years past? Uh, good question. Um, in years past, you know, Cajun fans got really spoiled with seeing the long ball year after year. I mean, sometimes I think a couple of years of Cajuns hit as many as 100 home runs. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but it was a bunch. You know, you have somebody like Lexi Elkins hitting 29, 30 home runs, DJ Sanders. Um, he, I think this is what the difference is. The previous coach was very good at getting players with potential and developing them, but taking a while to develop them. Uh, for instance, DJ Sanders, her first year, she didn't hit her first home run until halfway through the season. Uh, so it's, it's just, it took a year or two. Um, uh, Aaliyah, Aaliyah Creighton was redshirted as a freshman. Um, as far as her philosophy change, you know, I think Glasgow had some transfers come in. He had some fresh, he has some freshmen now who are very, very good in high school. Uh, has it translated to where he wants it to be? I'm sure it probably hasn't. But one thing you have to remember about this year is when you look at the starting lineup, there are six freshmen that are in the lineup 
And last year they were hitting high school and travel ball pitching. This year when they played some of the power five teams, you know, they're seeing a 72 mile an hour rise ball from Montana Faust that they have never seen before. Um, the pitcher last night, the Czech girl for Texas, who's a transfer from North Carolina State, she's a left-handed pitcher who threw with a tremendous amount of spin and was hitting her spots. And when that happened, you know, last night the umpire was calling a pitch about two inches off the plate to left-handed batters a strike. And there's just no way they're going to hit that strike. So it, it's just a, an uptick in the level of pitching that these incoming freshmen have seen that they're just not used to. You know, again, if you look at the batting averages, if you look at the scoreboard, they're hitting 400. I, I think uh, Jenna Keene is hitting 500. Maddie, you know, Maddie Hayden 410 or something like that. Um, some of it hasn't been, you know, they some of that is inflated because of playing some lesser teams. And when they do play the power five teams, they have struggled at times. But I just think it's the level of pitching. And as they see it more and more and more, uh, they're going to get more accustomed to it. And I think they will be more successful in the future. The last question I'll ask you is how do we feel overall about where we are in the season right now? And do you still think that this is a regional team? Oh yeah, it's a regional team. They're going to a regional, you know, you hear things that, Oh, they're not going to get a bid unless they win the conference tournament. They're going to get a bid. I mean, they're going to get a regional. They're not going to host a regional. They're going to go to a regional. It's probably going to be to LSU. It's happened, you know, the past few years, it's probably going to happen again. Are they where I think they would be at this point? Uh, there's a number of games that I thought they were going to lose this year. I didn't think they would go 0-6 against the Power 5 teams. I thought they would have beaten LSU. I thought they would have split with LSU, and I thought they would have split with Texas. Concerning Alabama with um, Montana Fouts and Kilfoyle, I didn't think they were going to win either one of those games. Now they have another shot against Texas coming up in a couple of weeks in Texas. Uh, as far as for the conference schedule is, is concerned, I didn't expect them to lose to Georgia State, which they did. It doesn't look like South Alabama is a very good team this year. They've kind of gone down uh, from what they did last year. They did make it. Uh, they did get a regional last year or did get to go to a regional last year. And you've got Texas State and Troy. So uh, the other teams, who knows what's going to happen? I wouldn't think they would lose more than four games in conference. Uh, they've already lost one, so if they lose three more, that would probably be about maybe where I thought they would be. So if they lose four more games in conference, and I'm sorry, three more games in conference, and they lose to Texas again, that's four more losses. So that will give them, what, uh, 11 losses for the year. Would that get them into a regional? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it would. Good deal. Some positivity on the way out. Thanks, Roy. You're welcome. Chris Russo of Russo Exploration encourages you to donate to the Ranging Cajun Athletic Foundation. The RCAF, the official fundraising arm of Louisiana Athletics, supports over 400 student-athletes across 16 NCAA sports. You can invest in the RCAF today for as little as $5 a month. Just go to myrcaf.org to get started or call 337-851-RCAF. As always, donations to the RCAF are tax-deductible. Your investment today will enrich the lives of of every athlete that puts on the vermilion and white. Go Cajuns!
All right, gentlemen, postseason basketball. Uh, you know how we feel about the league that we play in. Not exactly a titan. Uh, Georgia State's going to play Gonzaga today. I, we don't, I don't know how we feel. I can say personally, I don't think that they have a great shot to win, putting it mildly. Uh, our league champion, Texas State Bobcats, went up against North Texas. The Mean Green, who, you know, they've, they've historically had an okay program, but... Uh, they ended up losing a game. Uh, Texas State point guard Harrell, who absolutely dominated us when we played and really was one of the better players in our league, he had nine points. And really, Texas State didn't play very well, and that's kind of what the back end of their season looked like overall. They kind of just underachieved. Did anybody get a chance to watch that game? Uh, what does it say about the Sun Belt as a whole? And uh, any comments about that Texas State well, I'll say the end of the season and really just that game in particular. Not really. Um, I, I mean, North Texas is already a decent basketball program. We already kind of knew that. Um, I mean, just the way they played against us um, in the in the quarterfinal told me all I needed to know about what they had. Um, they really didn't impress me too much. Really, in both games we played them, we really should have won both. So how they were able to go, what, 20-something and six or whatever their record was or 22 and seven or whatever was kind of surprising to me because the record showed a lot better than what I saw on the court. So I'm not surprised that they went on the road uh, and lost. But at the same time, uh, the fact that they took them to overtime, they did have a shot to win the game. So I I really, you know, I'm not surprised. But, uh, I mean, look, Texas State, to their credit, they made the NIT. Uh, We didn't, so – Yeah, I'm not surprised. We are not a good um, basketball conference. I think that's obvious in the net rankings. And, um, you know, when Conference USA has three teams in the top 100 of the net and our closest is Texas State at like 137, that tells you everything you need to know. So, no, not surprised. And um, I honestly haven't been thinking about basketball because I want to bleach my brain of what just happened and transpired this season. It's true, and in one point of the season, I don't think we had... In fact, I don't think at any point during the entire season we had a single team in the belt be in the top 100 of RPI schools. Again, we talk about the the quality of the league. It's not been good. It's not getting any better, which is one of the main driving points behind this whole Bob Marlin conversation about, you know, the level of mediocrity that we've been watching. And, you know, even though we made a run, and that was a feel-good story, and we made our, our thoughts on that very clear... It's still a mediocre league, and we're a mediocre team. If you look historically, we're a mediocre league. Um, excuse me, a, a mediocre team in a mediocre league under the Bob Marlin reign. So what I'd like to do is propose a, a theoretical conversation. And Jerry and I kind of talked about this when we weren't on the pod, but I, I think it's a good conversation to have. Obviously, we made a run, and obviously we have a very talented roster. You know, we have our, our challenges, but overall – Three or four days in March is what it's all about. So, in the minds of few, or some, he was able to almost accomplish that ultimate goal of going dancing with everybody else. You know, that, you know the peers that we've kind of fallen behind over the years, you know, in, in the minds of Cajun basketball fans. If Brian Maggard brings back Bob, if he decides that Bob Marlin has one more year where he can accomplish some things here, 
if they go ahead and tell the fan base and they have an agreement with Marlon going into the 2023 season, and the agreement is something like this. Bob Marlon is going to be the coach of our basketball program for one additional year. Well, not even additional because we're not extending him, right? It's, it's the final year of his contract. He's going to be the coach of this basketball program for the final year of his contract. We're going to let him finish out the contract. We're going to honor that. But it's clear to everyone he's retiring at the end of the season. He's not being fired. He's not being extended. He is retiring. This is the Coach K farewell tour, if you will. Would you guys support that? And if you don't support it, what are your thoughts on it? I support it um, 100%. Look, I said it on Twitter the other day, and I know I caught some flack for it because I wasn't talking about wins and losses. Bob ran the program the right way, wins and losses aside. He had some success early on, um, but ultimately, you, you never heard any of our players in the news for something bad. The NCAA was never looking, you know, in our books and trying to, you know, figure out a way to hammer us for anything we might've done. And um, I think he's represented our school well as, as a basketball coach. So yes, I would support that. I like Bob as a human being. I will never cheer for somebody that I like to lose their job, no matter what it is. Um, But if it is, and again, this would be his decision because I'm sure uh, Maggard and, and, and he will have that conversation about his future. If it's his decision to, to step down after next year, I think we will have that conversation or, or we will hear that message from, from the university. Um, but, you know, I mean, he's been coaching for 34 years. Some coaches want to hang it up. Um, you look at, uh, you know, Wayne Graham at Rice, coached till he was 150 years old. So it, it really depends on what Marlon is thinking at this very moment. He's been through a lot personally. Um, does he want to call it a day or, or is he motivated, you know, to keep coaching? So ultimately it's his decision. Um, but we will, I think we will know from the administration what that decision was based on their announcement or lack of an announcement. I think we'll know what, where, where Bob Marlon's mind is. Yeah, for me, I think it's fair. If you if you solidify the plan for next year where it's just one more year, it's a farewell tour kind of like Coach K. Because, look, there are some big-time supporters that have this mindset that, well, what if he wins all these games next year uh, or wins, you know, 20-something games? Do we extend them? Well, I think we've had enough of a sample size to determine that, you know, I don't know if that's going to happen, right, with all these promises that these players are coming back because I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. These players that are coming back, even though they had that one decent run in the tournament, they still finished 13 and 14 with uh, an eighth place finish in this so-called weak conference. Eighth place. I mean, that that's that's the fact. You know, there's no emotion involved with that. That is the data. 13 and 14 regular season finish under 500 with, um, with an eighth place finish. So I think if you bring them back for one more year, as long as it's solidified again that it is one more year, and the fans understand that and everybody understands that and there's no changing minds at the last minute if we have a successful year next year, I think that's fair. I think that's very fair because at least the fan base will have an idea. I think the biggest issue right now is the fan base doesn't really know what's going on right now. So we'll see. So here's my question that that I'm trying to figure out in my head right now is watching the regular season team versus the tournament team, two different teams that we watched. The regular season team was hard to watch. And I'm not by any means a hardcore basketball fan. I watch them because they're UL, but they were hard to watch because it was turnover city. And it's like, I couldn't figure out if it was the lack of talent on the team or if it was 
coaching, a lack of coaching, proper coaching um, with these turnovers. So I, you know, what, if we lose players, if we don't lose players, I don't know because I don't know if it was a coaching issue or if it was a playing issue, but I know that it was hard to watch for an entire regular season this year. Agree. And we talked about this a few times during the tournament run. They had cohesiveness that they did not have in the regular season. And I think it, it the problem's almost always, you know, there's probably, there's several layers to big problems, right? I think that number one, Bob Marlin, Bob Marlin and staff love the combo guard. And I, I personally hate the combo guard. I think you need a true point guard to run a successful and consistent offense in college basketball. I just do. I, and, and maybe that's a little bit of old school thinking, but I don't like the combo guard. And we've relied on a combo guard, whether it be uh, Cedric Wilson, uh, Cedric, I lost his, I forgot his name already. Cedric uh, Russell, sorry. Russell. Cedric Russell, who was never a point guard, but they tried to shove him into that role. Uh, we've had, you know, Brian Bomalu was one of those guys that was, he was more of a point guard and they tried to make him a shooting guard. They love the combo guard. I never understood that. I think that when they, they just, let the offense run through uh, Mike Thomas, where he's he is a distributor. He is a point guard. He's going to go out. He's going to allow you to space the floor. He's going to look to pass and then shoot. You know what I mean? I think that makes a big difference. I think that you had a couple of positions that were getting in the way of each other. Like You look at Greg Williams and you look at Kobe Julian. Who was the three? Who, who Whose role was that really to step up and take? You know, you saw when, unfortunately, Kobe went out again with an injury. Greg, Greg Williams blossomed after that. He wasn't just a shooting specialist. He had an actual role, and I felt like he really fit that three-guard uh, role and that wing player really well. I think that he stepped in right, I mean, perfectly. So uh, at that, and then there, also you got to remember, Jordan Brown was in and out of the lineup. Him and Akuba never really had a rapport with each other. I thought they were much better in the tournament uh, now, in the final, I didn't think that they were too good. I, I think that Georgia State did a really good job of disrupting their flow. But, Nick, seriously, I think, that, I, I think that overall, the two teams were different. And Jerry and I talked about this in earlier podcasts going into basketball season. All these names and all these accomplishments mean diddly squat until they get on the floor and learn how to play with each other. Yeah, no doubt. And going back to back to the possibility of of Marlin making the decision to step down after next season, um, you know, I I know our, our attendance has been um, lacking to to you know say the least. It, it has not been great, and I think that is a result of the wins and losses and the and the lack of us even making a tournament. I think we've had one in the past what uh, 14, 15 seasons. So. Um, looking at, at, you know, who we go after, um, if, if that is the case, um, I found an interesting uh, story that stadium, uh, polled Sunbelt coaches three years ago and asked them different questions about other programs within the conference. And they, they asked for rankings and things like history, media exposure, and, and rank the programs, the top programs that you would want to coach at from one to, I think, uh, it was 12 at the time. And, uh, interestingly enough, we were ranked number one by our own Sunbelt coaches, um, one in history and tradition, which I thought was interesting game atmosphere. We were number one. Um, okay. Budget resources. I, I think, um, okay. I, I could see that and selling pros, um, you know, the ability to sell their players, not literally, we're not will Wade, but to sell players to the NBA and have scouts come in and look at them. So, uh, we're ranked actually number one, Georgia state was number two. So I think, I think if, if they do go through the swan song of a season next year, um, you know, that that's a year long coaching 
search that you have. And also, um, you know, you have coaches that will be able to follow the program for a year. So I think that would be my best case scenario. But again, I think it's all going to depend on what Bob wants to do professionally uh, and personally in his life. So ideally, I think that's what I'd like to see happen, but it is going to be, um, it'll be interesting to see the names that are thrown around. I would like to see them go uh, the direction that we did with, with Jesse Evans. He had just won a national championship at Arizona as an assistant coach. And, you know, um, he comes right over and starts coaching for us and, and has great success for the few years he was with us. So um, I think, uh, you know, that's my ideal situation is that, is that they give him a year he it's a swan song and then uh, we go get a, a young up-and-comer what's interesting is that there's a lot of times i've talked to a few you know the diehards and they ask the same question well who we're we going to get and it makes me wonder like do you not see the amount of assist a number of assistant coaches out there who are young and energetic who could come in here and win right away i mean there's a ton of them out there it's just like football baseball any other sport you've got a lot of up-and-coming coaches who see the potential here and could come here and, and, and win and be consistently and be consistent winners. Um, I just think at this point, you know, the, sometimes the product goes stale um, and it's nothing against any of the coaches. It's nothing against any of the players. It's just sometimes you, you sort of need that extra boost. And I think right now that's where we are uh, looking at attendance. Like you said, Nick, it's, it's, it's not, it's just not what it was. Um, and, you know, people can throw out, well, it's basketball's not what it used to be. And the Sun Belt's not what it used to be. Well, what, what, what's interesting about that, and on the contrary, that actually gives us more of an opportunity to take that one spot in the Sun Belt. And I think that's a little frustrating to me when I hear that, because really what it is, it's like I said, it's the culture of can't. It's this laissez-faire approach that we have as fans sometimes that just say, well, what was us? We'll just accept our fate instead of saying, you know what? This is a golden opportunity to strike right now with the Sun Belt being down. This is a golden opportunity for us to be that number one team to go and dominate. I mean, look, we've done it in softball for 30 years in the Sun Belt. You know, the Sun Belt's not the greatest in softball all the time, but that doesn't stop us from winning the conference every year, right? So, you know, if we take that approach and, and at least try to make a change um, with the mindset, to make a change with the way we think as, as a fan base, you know, we can be that number one team. And I understand Georgia state's always been sort of the, the standard, but you know, we've before Georgia state came around, we were kind of the standard. We were kind of that team that would always finish in the top three, top four. And yet in the past four seasons, I know everybody likes to throw out, you know, since 2014, we've been had the second best uh, conference record or second most wins. Well, in the past four years, we're sixth, sixth, Hire a coach anywhere and let them coach for four years, their first four seasons, and let them be six in their conference. A lot of them wouldn't keep their jobs. And so that goes back to our standard. What's our standard? Um, I think going back to what, uh, Nick, what you mentioned about, you know, I never saw it this way, but having a full year of doing a coaching search and letting these potential uh, coaches take a look at what our program is doing and take a look at the potential here, that could actually be an opportunity right there, right? Um, and, and going after a P5 assistant who has been around winning cultures, have been around winning programs, who can bring that here would be, would be great. Um, you know, we saw it in football with Billy Napier. Guy coached at Alabama, guy coached at Clemson, guy coached at Arizona State, and he brought everything he learned there and brought it here, and look at what we've done in football over the past four seasons. So, you know, I just think, I just think really it's the way we think. Well, we have to change that mindset of laissez-faire because, well, you know, it, it is what it is. It's just accept our fate. No nonsense. 
it's time to set our goals and time to set our standards higher than just, you know, being okay with one good weekend and finishing 13 and 14 and eighth place in a, in a conference. That's not what it used to be. Right. We're, we're, we're preached. We're preached to about that. Oh, the Sun Belt's not what it used to be. Well, then my question is, why are we finishing in eighth place? Right. We need to be doing better than that. What I think is, is that it's easy to get stuck in a bubble, but, but when you, to Nick's point, when you get a group of your peers to vote on your potential, your resources, your, uh, your branding, your game atmosphere, which, you know, it's a morgue in there. I mean, come on, let's be honest. It's a morgue. But when other coaches come to the Dome and they have that type of feeling about that place and, you know, what's really important is that they leave feeling like they just had some sort of an experience if they're going to go ahead and vote that way. And this is three years ago now. We're coming off of some major wins. You know, that would have been this, the second season after uh, winning the league. So there's still plenty, you know, some of that resonates later, you know, a year after. You remember Bob saying, you know, people are coming to the Cajun Dome and giving, giving the Cajuns their best shot, where the, you know, where their Super Bowl and this stuff. So obviously, it matters. And, and you can't argue that we don't have the resources. You can't argue that we don't have the venue. You can't argue that we don't have the recruiting base. It's just not true. You know, people can make all the excuses they want to make. At the end of the day, people are going to believe what they're going to believe. The fact remains is that we've been, over the course of 12 years, we have been an average team in an average conference. You cannot argue with that. The facts do not lie. This is fact-based, numbers-based. Now, to, and, and I posed the question, and it was theoretical, but I'll say this. I would fully support the swan song season. That's a great way to put it. If Bob is willing to coach one more year and finish out the contract, you know, I think that would be fine. I think that you can sell that to the fan base. Even the ones that maybe not may not support that, you know, on the front end, if they can have some success, I still think that you can leave the program in a pretty good position, you know, when we go to find the next coach that's going to coach here. So th- there's plenty of positive. I, you know, people are giving us a hard time on social media about, you know, we've been soft on Bob. I don't necessarily think we've been soft on Bob, Jerry. I think that we've been fair. We've been extremely critical over the years because the performance warranted us being critical. The, the results warranted it. But I think that given what has transpired over the last couple of months, if you can tell the fan base, this is the last 365 days that this man is going to be the head coach of our basketball program. I think people will latch onto that. I think people would respect that. And I think that it's a good way to dissolve the relationship in, in a way that you can move forward in a positive and classy fashion, kind of like you mentioned on the last episode. Yeah, well, it's 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 a win win for everybody, you know, that nobody's leaving on bad terms. Everybody's happy. And and the acceptance of a new coach, regardless of I call them you know, some people who are loyalists to, to coach Marlin, they, they could it, it, you're leaving on good terms, um, you know. So, yeah, I mean, look, we all want what's best for the program. We all want success. The question is, at what standard, you know, what standard do we want this program to be? And when I hear about, you know, basketball doesn't have enough talent down here to create a tournament team. I disagree with that. Houston, three hours to the West, was a Final Four team last year. They're another, once again, in the top 25. We beat them, uh, you know, five or so, was it, eight years ago in the Cajun Dome, right? Same team, went to the Final Four, mid-major university. So, you know, this idea that we can't find talent is ridiculous to me. Um, you know, you're in a six-hour six radius between San Antonio, Dallas, Little Rock, Memphis, all the way down to Mobile, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Shreveport. You can't find 10 players that are good enough to 
to go to the tournament. I, I don't I don't believe that. I, I just don't. You're not wrong. You're absolutely not wrong. And, uh, you know, again, we talk about it all the time. Standard. We have got to find a standard for Raging Cajuns basketball. Brian Maggard laid out a standard. Top four. I think he said top four. Top four or top three. That's what it was. Top three and competing for championships year in and year out. Well, if you do, if you do the average over the course of a 10-year pr- period, it, it's not there. I mean, that's his own standard, his own boss's standard that was set. We're not living up to it. That's got to be addressed. And here's the thing. You made a comment about we all want the program to succeed. I, I, so I got to question that sometimes. Do you want the program to, to, to succeed at the expense of your quote-unquote seat at the table? Because we have those fans. We have those fans that write a check and don't ask questions as if it's a charity. It's not a charity. We have a program at this school that can do big-time branding and revenue uh, dollars and, and, and TV time and, and build exposure for our university and our community, which is the number one ultimate goal. And we're wasting that potential in this men's basketball program. You know, you guys mentioned about the history and everything in the poll. There, we have a great history. In fact, we have such strong history that the majority of our fan base are those, those boomers and Gen Xers that stuck around because of those successful years under Fletcher and all those guys. That's how strong success can bind your diehard core to a program. We missed out on that. You know, I would, I would even say to a certain degree, when HUD was here and showed Lafayette what this community could do and build a winner and, and really be proud and excited about their football program, that even that spilled over into the later years of HUD and the early years of Billy. You know, I know, I know the attendance wasn't anything to write home about, but there was still a hardcore base that expected to win there was a standard set in football under HUD and it it carried over into Billy and now Billy with his success has bred you know some pretty hardcore football fans but we've never really had that here no well I say not never maybe in the early 80s I think I think what you're saying is true I also think that if we just again go back to the laissez-faire approach I talked about where they people want just want to see it at the table you know, if we if we held on to that mindset in football, we would still be going six and six every year. We would still be going five and seven and being happy that we won five games. Um, you know, sometimes you kind of need a swift kick to get your program or a jump, like a car jump, right? Your car goes out and you need a battery jump. Same thing. We need a little bit of that spark back in basketball to create excitement. The reality is the excitement's not there. And, you know, people can try to debate me on that. They can make excuses. They can say why it's not. But the reality is go to a game. You know, the attendance is down. Um, there's really not much excitement. Um, you know, go on the message boards. The, the basketball is kind of an afterthought, right? I mean, look, last night in a midweek game against Magnese, you had seven or eight, uh, probably close to 10 pages worth of material for a Wednesday night baseball game. When do you see that in a basketball game, right? And, and this idea that, you know, well, basketball is just ignored here. Nonsense. Basketball was pretty much the number one sport for decades over here. And, you know, fans just are at the point where they've just had enough. If they, they realize if the standard's not there, I don't want to be a part of it. And I think that that's really why you're chasing off the fans. Because they understand where the potential is. And they understand all of the things that those, that poll reflected. Resources, fan support, et cetera, et cetera. I think the reason why we're losing that fan base is because they've been alienated. They maybe, I mean, hell, they probably feel like the administration is saying, you know, we had a prominent person who follows UL sports say recently that basketball was an afterthought 
Look, basketball is an afterthought because of our own inaction. I don't think that's unfair to say. I think that, I think that some fans, the casual fan, right, the ones that are going to go spend 50 bucks at concessions and buy beer and things like that, the ones that you got to grab from the Lafayette community, they feel probably marginalized because in some way the administration has abandoned them. In, in this regard, if you're not going to put on an exciting brand of basketball, then I'm not really going to consume your product. It's incumbent upon the administration to hire somebody who can, who can field a team that's going to get those casual fans in the Cajun Dome more nights than not. And right now, it's not fun to watch. It's not exciting. There's not a ton of success. And look, I understand the other side of it. I understand the people that say, you know, he's graduating players. We have classy folks in the, in the, uh, in the university and, or I'm sorry, in the, within the program and we're doing it the right way. All of that stuff has value. It has merit. I appreciate that. But I've said it here and I'll say it again. You don't get a bonus for showing up to work on time. It's, it's not just because Bob Marlin can field a clean program. That's great. That should be expected. That should be part of the standard. Because there are 50 or 100 other programs that run a, a shady uh, basketball program, that, that, should, that should really bear nothing on this program. We have a certain standard. We need to focus on what we expect, what is the base of what we will accept. Graduating players should just be part of the deal, right? Remember when HUD's last game against Georgia Southern in 2017 and only 5,000 people showed up to the game? You know, I didn't hear people say, well, you know, that's just how the program is now. We're in trouble, and that's, that's how it's going to always be. I, I just see a different narrative with, with men's basketball right now, and it's like you said, the reason why is because there's you have to, you know, we, we're, we fans are the customers, right? You got to give us a reason to want to spend money and go. And when your, your marquee non-conference home game is Jackson State because, quote-unquote, they won the SWAC last year, and then on top of that you lose to them, you're not going to draw many people to come watch you. I'm sorry. It, 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 you're just not. Um, and I know there's a lot of guys coming back next year. I understand that, you know, we can carry the momentum. But at the same time, how do we know they won't? How do you know we're, we're going to go back to the, you know, 14, 15 win season and totally, you know, just be just disappoint? I, I don't know. I, I just I don't know. Um I don't know what to expect next year, regardless of who comes back. I think if even if we get a new coach, I think we're going to have to start from scratch anyway. So I, I just it, there's a lot of unknowns right now. And again, like you said, I mean, look at baseball, softball. I mean, you know, not only do they have traditional winning programs, but they also attract good teams. Right. I mean, yesterday, softball, two teams, two games against the University of Texas, Alabama, two or three weeks ago, two games against Alabama. You had a game against LSU. You've got ranked teams that come in. You had UC Irvine in, 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 in baseball, right? You, you, you drew Rice last year. You, you had Southern Miss come in. You know, you, you had Houston come in last week. Those type of games, especially when you compete against those teams, people are going to spend money because they know they're going to see a good product. And that's another thing, too. I mean, that's business. That that's really has nothing to do with just, just wins and losses. That's basic business 101, right? It's a complicated subject because – we do see potential, but I say it's a complicated subject because, you know, it goes back to ask, you know, like you asked earlier, do you give coach Marlin another year? I, I mean, I, I can understand why, but at the same time, it shouldn't change the fact that we need to add a spark to this program and, and, and attract people to the games, right? Attract people to the games and, and, and give people a reason to want to go. Agreed. And look, all I know is, is I do not want to be Brian Maggard right now. 
I, I would not want to be Brian. It's a tough. It's a tough decision. It's kind of a firecracker topic. I, I just, yeah, I, I feel for the guy a little bit. You know, he's made a lot of great moves. So you know, I got plenty of confidence in him. He's he's the captain of the ship, and he's he's steered us pretty well so far in his tenure. Uh, and he'll do the right thing. And I, I just, you know, if you guys out there listening to the pod, if you have a thought on that question that we posed, would you support a farewell a farewell tour for Bob? Let us know what you think. I think it's I think it's a good conversation to have, and I think it would be interesting to get everybody's point of view. Uh, moving on to football, spring practice started. You know, we're finally starting to see some creative videos come out, and that's good. It's good to see Dez in his role. You can tell that he's got a, a really good rapport with the players. Uh, the videos are fun, and I know that they know that they're on camera, so some of it is a little bit of performative theater. Like, I get that part, but he seems like – he seems happy. The kids seem like they're working hard and they, they enjoy playing for him. But he's also stern and he teaches. And it's cool to see him in his element. So I just wanted to mention that, you know, Dez is, is he is, uh, he's embarking on quite the journey here. You know, he's one of us. We're going to pull hard like hell for him. It's going to be fun. You know, I, a lot of people looking at the schedule thinking it's winnable. I think it is winnable. I think that there's no reason why we can't be in contention for the West at least. We've got plenty coming back. I know that we've lost a lot. You know, I mentioned the roster. McCaskill, a name that we didn't think we'd see again, he is on the spring roster. Uh, Another notable thing from spring is that, you know, the quarterbacks are legitimately having a quarterback battle. I don't think Fields is QB1. Uh, I think he has the edge, if I'm being honest. But as of right now, it looks like everybody's getting their share of snaps. Jerry, who do you expect to be the quarterback under center when we take the field in 2023? Two in the fall, and uh, what do you think about McCaskill coming back? Uh, McCaskill coming back is a huge surprise. I'm very ecstatic about that. That's huge because of his not only his defensive presence on the field, but he's he has that seniority of, of leadership as well. Um, the guy is he's an aggressive player, um, and and you know the the accolades speak for themselves. Now um, back to Coach Dez. You know Mike is uh, I, I see a lot of similarities to when he played. Um, you know, the, the attitude, the mindset, you can definitely tell he's a player's coach, but that's exactly the way he was as the starting quarterback. That was the type of presence he, he brought about. I remember one time, a uh, quick story. He was, uh, this was back in 07 and towards the end of the year, I think he had hurt his arm. Uh, he fractured something in his elbow or arm and he had a cast on and, uh, he was watching, I think it was Pascal and, uh, one of the defenders, I think there was uh, the guy was a freshman def- uh, defensive back, didn't make a play or missed his assignment. And Mike, in his cast, standing on the sideline, got into a screaming match with him, telling him to, 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 to step it up. And, you know, it just kind of showed me watching him at practice, like, here's this guy who's hurt. He's basically out for the year. He could pretty much throw in the towel. At the, that year was the year we weren't that good. I think we were three and nine. I think we were like one and seven at the time during that part of the season. And here's Mike, like, getting on this guy for not following his assignment while being hurt. And that just goes to show you the leadership role of of of, this, of Mike, even back then as a quarterback, which has obviously evolved into him as being the head coach. Um, he's, you know, he, like he says, you know, this is any, this is, this job means everything to him, and he's going to show it. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna utilize that that emotion. It's personal with him. So, um, I expect the players to react to it. I expect. Uh, people to respond in a positive manner because this it's a passion. So 
I, I like that. I like the energy from him. I, I kind of see a lot of similarities to the previous coaching staff with Napier and his staff on the videos. So you keep bringing that same intensity and that same energy. I'm hoping we get the same results. Um, as far as starting quarterback, look, it's up for grabs right now. Look, no matter what you think of Levi, Levi was Levi Lewis. I mean, he had the reputation around the conference as being the premier quarterback of the league, and you just lost him, right? Um, that's a lot. That's big shoes to fill. Um, also, I think right now, but right now, I think Chandler has seniority, obviously. But then you look at other quarterbacks like Lejeune as, or Lejandra and, um, and guys like Zion, Zion Chris. I mean, you got other guys out there that, are, <laughs> that can give Chandler a run for his money. Um, so I, you know, it's, that's the beauty of spring football. That's the beauty of, you know, when you, when you're coming in with a new quarterback, you, you get to have the competition and Mike's not going to gift anything to anyone. He's going to make you earn it. So that's one thing I look forward to in the spring game is seeing how the quarterbacks play, seeing what kind of offense we run. Um, you know, I noticed in the bowl game when Mike was calling the plays, he ran a lot more play action. He let Levi run the ball some more. It's going to be interesting to see if, if Mike, utilizes the type of offense with a dual threat quarterback uh, similar to when, when he was quarterback, right? A lot more zone read, uh, short passes, a lot of screens, um, you know, quick tempo. It's going to be fun to watch and I'm excited. And, and it's just cool to see it evolve because, uh, because I think at the end of the day, the product's still going to be really, really good regardless of who gets the starting job. And it means, and it also means that they earned the position. Right. And look, we, the, Talent is definitely not the issue. We've got a ton of talent in the quarterback room we have for a few years. So that's important. And listen, everybody, we need to remember this. Following athletics is supposed to be fun. I know that the way football ended last year and the unceremonious you know, departure of Napier was tough to swallow, and a lot of us kind of feel like he did it in a sleazy way. Let's forget about that. Let's focus on our ball club. Let's have fun. It's supposed to be fun. There's no reason to worry. We've got a lot, the several positions that are going to be determined. Let's enjoy it. Let's see who's going to be the next quarterback of this football team. Let's see who. Let's see if Chris Smith can Chris Smith can step up and be that every down back that we know he can be. Let's see the development of this this defense. Who has you know we've taken a couple of lumps on defense and we've lost some guys. Let's see who's going to step up. I can promise you this: you don't have the number one recruiting class in the Sun Belt four years in a row without having some depth and having some talent all across the roster. We've hired some excellent and capable coaches. We need to let them do their jobs. We're probably going to have some growing pains. Let's enjoy it. It's supposed to be fun. Let's not forget that part. Uh, Tracy Walker, uh, a beloved guy around the complex and uh, a, a real true professional. He's carved out quite the career for himself. He gets a three-year, $25 million deal from Detroit to stay and play for the Lions. $17 million of that guaranteed. Good for for Tracy, you know, he wasn't making chump change before, but this is going to be a, a, a nice payday for Tracy, who has just continued to improve, continued to be reliable for Detroit. And uh, while it may not be a great team, I still try to tune in whenever I can because I want to support our guys. And, and Tracy is one of those, those players that have come out of the, the program in the, in the recent 10-year stretch where we've put guys in the NFL and they've gone out and performed and, and, and really been a, a nice ambassador for the program. So good for Tracy, good for his family, happy that he got the bag, as the kids say. And uh, we're looking forward to him continuing to be a, a stalwart in, in the defensive secondary for the Detroit Lions. Other than that, guys, a couple of things that we got to get to. We've been talking about tennis. We don't think that they get the shine that they deserve. I mean, who was talking about tennis two months ago? Nobody. You know, we start 
we try to cover the teams that are really excelling on the field. And, and as much as we try to shove into the show, that can be difficult. So what I did was I was able to sit down with Rage and Dave, Dave Amato, a good friend of us, a, a good friend of ours and a good friend of the pod. And we got to get into the nitty gritty a little bit uh, of the tennis team. And he's going to, first of all, I did not know how the tennis team operates. I don't know positions. I don't know how they play. I don't know how the tournaments go. So I asked him some questions about that. He was very candid and uh, he named some names to watch for. He he was able to talk about we, the schedule that we have coming up. So stick around, guys. I think it's going to be something that you really enjoy. Dave is very knowledgeable and uh, a big tennis fan. He's been following the program closely for a very long time. So, Dave, tennis right now, 14-1. and one, They sit in the top 40 of America in, uh, in tennis programs. How many programs are there in America, by the way? That's a question I always think. I would tell you, I don't know the exact amount. I would tell you there's somewhere probably around a little over 300 that are men's tennis teams in Division I. They rank the top 75. Usually, the way it works is the top 25 are ranked in the first uh, couple of weeks. And then once the season gets extended, then they start expanding the, the rankings to the top 75. Um, and that's usually your teams that are going to play in the NCAA tournament, or at least, you know, most of those teams are going to be qualifying for the NCAA tournament. And is, is it a regional type of environment for postseason play? Is it how does the postseason work for tennis? Yeah, so it's similar to softball and baseball in the fact that they will have, it'll be 64 teams broken up into 16 regions to four teams each. Usually there's a number one seed, a clear number four seed, and they really don't seed the two and the three seeds, but you know who they are. You can usually decipher who the two and three seeds are. Okay, so obviously we're, we have our eye on the postseason. Cajun sure. tennis is flirting with the top 10% of programs in America. We were able to schedule with FAU, another top 50 program, and just announced recently, last few days, Oklahoma is going to be an opponent here in the near future. Uh, maybe touch on how we're able to schedule these games later in the season. I know it's a little bit unorthodox if you follow basketball or anything else that's sure. kind of a set schedule. Uh, how important is that for the program, and how are we able to get those bigger programs to go ahead and play us? It, well, one, it's enormous um, uh, to get those two type of programs this late in the season, um, specifically the FAU match, which is a week before our conference tournament starts. Um, and we're deep into conference play at that point. But to get a top 50 or a top 60 team to help your and it's not an RPI, but your ITA rankings is is huge. And then to to. To fill out the schedule. So the way this worked with Oklahoma was really odd. Um, Oklahoma had an open week and they did not have any matches scheduled. We happened to be in Arlington playing UT Arlington on Friday. And I, I, guess, I guess coach worked with uh, Oklahoma to schedule a match where they had an off week. They don't play anybody this week. So he had a look. We are a very advantageous uh, program for someone to play right now, specifically a team that's similar ranking as ours. It, it, it's a risk versus reward, right? But the reward is much bigger than the risk. At this point, we are trying to win the conference tournament to get the automatic bid to the NCAA tournament, right? That's our main goal. But if we can move up in the rankings into the top 30, where we could be that number two seed, um, or possibly even push higher by beating FAU and beating Oklahoma to maybe host 
which would be enormous for, for our program. But, but look, if you win these two matches, your ranking is going to go from 38 to top 25 pretty quickly uh, based on those wins. So that's why he was scheduling them. And we are a team that Oklahoma wants to schedule and FAU want to schedule because the same thing, if they win that match, it's a huge, huge boost for them. I don't know if they have this metric in tennis, but it sounds like an RPI game in baseball where the risk is, is certainly there for a loss, but at the same time, the schedule reflects that you are willing and able to play and maybe compete or beat a better team or a P5 program or somebody that has more respect in the, in the tennis ranks. So that's important. And that's, I think that's something our fans would be interested in um, coming, yeah. coming, coming up soon here is going to be conference play. Uh, yep. What does the Sun Belt look like from, from a strength of schedule uh, standpoint and, are the Cajuns a clear, uh, you know, are we going to compete for a, a belt championship? Do you think? I, I do. Well, yeah, absolutely. Based on the, the, the roster we have put together and the, and the players we have, I don't think there's any doubt that we can compete. Uh, there's going to be some teams that are going to give us some, some trouble. Uh, USA is always a good tennis team. Uh, they were the conference representative last year for the NCAA tournament. Um, UTA has a pretty good program and we get them this weekend. And then Georgia State, for the first time this season, they just got into the top 70, 75, but they're on a little bit of a winning streak. So there's some teams that we are going to be challenged to beat, but we are at least in the top two or three that I think uh, in the conference. And, and we should be the favorite going in as long as we stay healthy. And that's the key to this team. We only have eight players on the roster. We really, you play six players in tennis every week. Um, and the, the, the one major issue is that we have a clear top six players. There is a, you know, if we lose any of them to injury or to COVID or to anything else, you could have some, some issues because, um, our seventh and eighth player are not as good as our top six. Uh, but that's not taking anything away from them. They just don't play as much as the other six do. So you mentioned the roster and you mentioned the positions. Uh, I know personally, I'm not too educated and versed in the tennis realm. Sure. Can you maybe kind of touch on the structure of the team, yeah. how those position players are used, how they contribute to the team, and maybe uh, you know throw out some names to look for if you're if a, sure. a new tennis yeah. fan wants to get involved. Absolutely. So so the way it works is you play three doubles matches. So you have six players that play in doubles. The doubles uh, matches only count for one point. So if you win 2-1, you only get one point in doubles. You play six positions in singles, and you rank them one through six. So your number one plays against their number one, two versus two, all the way down to six versus six. And those all count for one point apiece. So you have a total of seven points that you are chasing, and you're trying to get the first to four is the winner. Usually, depending on how it's going on, they will stop the match if you're up 4-0 or 4-1 or 4-2. Uh, sometimes the teams will continue to play it out because the players just want to get some practice in, so they'll, they'll finish the matches off. Um, and that's why you'll see some matches will finish 4-0, some matches will be 5-2 or 6-1. Uh, but it, it really just depends on what the coaches decide and how much play they have coming up that week, whether they, whether they want to continue to play the match or not, or if they just want to call it. If it's a travel team, if it's a team that's got to travel a long way, they probably will try to get that match over with so they can go back home and, and, and get ready for their next match. As far as players go, I, 
I did not think this team was ready to compete this well this early. Uh, I thought they were a year or two away. And the reason I say that is we carry one junior, I think two or three sophomores, and the rest of the team are freshmen. Now, they're COVID freshmen, so they've had some experience. Sure. But they're still freshmen. And where we're getting it, it is, is amazing. Um, our number three position is a gentleman by the name of Oriol Falat Jimenez. And, and, and some of these names are going to be very difficult to, uh, to uh, pronunciate because they are uh, mostly all foreign-born players. Uh, but Jimenez, his 13-1 and one on the season, he has absolutely been lights out at the number three position. And he's, I mean, the only loss he has this year was to UTSA early in the season in a three-set match. So he is, he's really been carrying the team at the three spot. But we're getting, we got two freshmen, two true, well, I, yeah, I, I believe they're both true freshmen. Um, a gentleman by the name of Vassal uh, Dimitrov, which I need to find this out. And I don't know. I'd love to speak to him, and I'm hoping I can get a chance to. There was a top 10 player a couple of years ago uh, named Dimitrov from Bulgaria, and so is our Dimitrov. I don't know if they're cousins, related, uncle. I don't, I, I'd love to find out if he has any relation to uh, Grigor uh, Dimitrov, who was a top 10 player for a long time. And then Callan Pastea, both of those players are 12 and three and 11 and two. They mostly play at the five and six position. So where we're winning is really at that three, five and six position is carrying three of our wins. If you can get three wins, that means you just got to pull one off somewhere else. And the rest of our team's playing well as, as well. The, the one major concern we have besides the depth issue, which I think is a concern, is at the number one position. And this is no slight on this gentleman. And he's got the greatest name of a tennis player possible for the Cajuns. Yes, I know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> His name is Carlo Cajun. Um, and he is he's playing the number one position. And I, I think I've told a few people this in the past. He's not, last year he played mostly at number two. The year before he was playing at number three. He's really not a true number one for us, but he's six and five on the season, which means he's, he's doing okay. But we lost two really good players in the last two years that would have probably been playing at that number one position. One of them is playing number one at Auburn right now. And the other one is playing number two at Oregon right now. So wow. Carlo went from being a number three guy on our roster to having to carry the load at number one. And he's, look, he's struggling in tough matches. But if he can stay above 500, he's doing his job because it's allowing the guys behind him to, uh, to win matches. Yeah, sounds like it speaks to the, to the maturity of the younger players. Like you said, winning in those, in those later positions. Uh, so to be clear, he actually does pronounce the name Cajun. Well, I, I call him Cajun. I think it's Kajan, to be honest with you, but but it's close enough to Cajun. I'm going to call him Cajun. Yeah, I, I made the joke when I saw his name on the roster. I said, there's no way that guy was signing anywhere else. He had to come. Okay. <laughs> when, it's like against the law if he signs anywhere else. Yeah, when I saw that he had signed with us, I, I immediately said, man, that is the perfect player for us. I don't care if he wins a match. He needs to play on this team. Dave, if you're looking at the schedule, yeah, what is the next match that you as a as a you know true tennis fan are looking 
to go out to Cajun courts and get rowdy and have a great time watching the tennis team? What's exciting that's coming up next? Yeah, no, I, I would tell you, um, we have a weekend series coming up next weekend, the 25th and the 27th. Georgia Southern is coming in, but that Georgia State match is huge. It's an 11 a.m. start uh, against Georgia State. They, If they continue to win, they'll be higher in the uh, ITA rankings, and this will be a matchup of two really good and top 75 teams playing each other, and it could be uh, uh, you know, it, it might be a match that you could see in the uh, in the Sun Belt Conference Championship. Very interesting. And if baseball's at home, you can go out there for 11, stay a couple hours, tailgate for an hour, and then go back into the Teague and make it a full day. Look, I tell people all the time, when I was a student going back, back in the late 80s, I used to go to the baseball games specifically to stand on the third baseline so I could watch the tennis being played and and the baseball being played at the same time if they were going on at the same time if not i would do the same thing i would go out and watch the cajuns play tennis in the morning walk over to uh, the teague and watch baseball afterward it's a full day and it's it's a lot of good competition i i it's free which you can't beat that right um so i i encourage anybody who is a cajun fan or a tennis fan to get out and support this team they're really good really good Dave, appreciate the knowledge, man. You've kind of become my resident tenants guy. I appreciate you taking a few minutes to come in here and uh, tell us what you know. All right, man. Take care. So we have a special man, I tell you what, from the mind of Nick Doming. I want to thank Nick again for joining. He's He added a lot to the pod. We expect him to be back and helping us out while, uh, while Matt is focusing on a little bit more important things in life than Rage and Review. Man, I tell you what. So having been associated with the program, you know, really most of of my life since I was a freshman in college through uh, just a couple years ago, I was lucky enough to be able to get to know Robe on, on kind of a personal basis. And so people ask me occasionally, hey, tell me a, tell me a good Robe story. So I kind of have a, a, a vault of, of memories from Robe that I like to pull out every now and again. But I think my favorite stories have to do with Robe's personality that he never necessarily showed to people. You see Robe in when you would see him speaking at an event, he was very serious. And you'd see him on TV and you'd see him at the games and you'd see him walking around campus. He was always very focused and very serious. But there were there was another side to Robe that he didn't show often, and and it was quite funny. Um, I think one of my favorite stories I've got a couple. First, to, to kind of demonstrate that what he did to me, I was a, a freshman working for him, and I wasn't paying attention to the date of the calendar, and we were having a normal work day and he hands me over this little sticky note and on the sticky note it has a name on it spelled the letters l dot c dot d e c a l decal and then it had a phone number underneath so really didn't think anything of it robe looks at me in a very serious manner didn't smile didn't you know give any indication that he was trying to screw with me and he says hey this guy called and and left a message and i think he wants to buy season tickets and he had questions about the program and wants to know if he can donate and how he goes about doing that so could you give him a call and i said i'm on this robe and at the time robe's office actually had a desk for me right next to him so it wasn't 
like I had to go somewhere to make the call. He knew I would pick up the phone right then and there and call. So I pick up the phone, I call, and I ask somebody, lady answers the phone, and I said, yes, ma'am, can I speak to Mr. Elsie DeCal, please? She was not happy like she was absolutely frustrated that i was calling and she immediately said sir it is april fool's day somebody's pranking you this is borden's ice cream somebody asked you to call elsie the cow and robe thought that was the absolute funniest thing ever and i to this day since i still remember it from when i was 18 years old i obviously think it's one of the funniest things ever so that just shows you kind of a little bit of the personality he doesn't necessarily show to others but one story that I have, I actually unfortunately wasn't privy to being at the, the the situation when it happened. I was told about it right after. But every year, Robe would have these year-end meetings with his players. And he would have the athletic director, the coaches, some other athletics administrators, you know, really the stakeholders of the program in on these, these meetings. And sometimes he would pull in athletics uh staff in as well and, and give them a, a year in report for, for their performance. So they called in uh, one of the athletics administrators at the time, David Faber. David's like me. Fabes has been around the program since he was a kid. So he was, we were kind of in the same, uh, you know, growing up at the ballpark and knowing Robe growing up and such. So uh, a couple weeks before that, uh, we had played in the LSU regional. And during that regional, Fabes was there and had all this UL gear on. And Fabes was having a good time. He probably had maybe a couple of drinks. I don't know. I won't confirm or deny, but Fabes was having a good time. And all of a sudden, between innings, I look up on the big screen at Alex Box Stadium and the YMCA is going on. And suddenly, like David is in a YMCA dance off with one of the LSU fans, which was the funniest thing ever, if you know Fabes. So flash fast forward to this this year in meeting and Robe calls David in and has David seat, sit at, at the end of this table. Then they've got athletics administrators sitting on the sides and then Robe's at the head. So they're looking face to face and Robe, you know, after Faber sits down, Robe just starts laying into him and saying, I cannot believe that you represented the university in such a way. Here we are trying to win a regional and you as an athletics administrator is making a fool out of yourself on the big screen doing the YMCA. Meanwhile, Bab and and John Dugat, uh, another athletic administrator, they're trying to hold it together because they know what's going on. And and. I've been told Faber was like turning red. He was, his eyes were welling up with tears. He was freaked out. He really thought that this was real. And Robe just kept laying into him. And you know, you represent the name on your chest. You represent me and my program. You embarrass me. I, I don't want to see you around here anymore. And at the very end, Robe just kind of let him off the hook and, and told him it was all a joke. And um, I understand the place just erupted in laughter and, and Faber, poor guy, probably just melted in his chair. So there, there was a side to Robe that he didn't show everyone that was a really funny, witty prankster kind of side. And even if he showed it to you, he didn't show it often. But when it came out, it was really funny just because of how serious he was 99% of the time. So definitely a couple of, of my favorite uh, Coach Robe stories. Then I tell you what. Thanks for listening, guys. We always appreciate the support and check us out all social sites. Rajan Review. Uh, we have a, a new site up that we worked on this week, and uh, it'll be a nice landing spot for you guys when you visit the pages. So thanks again for listening, and as always.
Go, you, L. <laughs>